In June 1985, the character of John Constantine, fair warning we call him John Constantine for the rest of this review, debuted in the pages of Swamp Thing number 37. And as part of his introduction to the book's titular character, John introduces himself by saying, I'm a nasty piece of work, Chief. Ask anybody. Well, one of our hosts thought that this movie, the adaptation of Constantine from 2005, was also a nasty piece of work. And the resulting conversation is one of our more animated episodes in a very long time. So just a few notes at the top. First, this episode was recorded before the announcement of the sequel that's now in production with Keanu Reeves returning to the role. This makes our skepticism of that possibly happening at the end of this episode even funnier in hindsight. The episode also starts with a bit of comic book talk for context on both the character and why we're doing it for this episode number. But if you want to skip that, we will be putting the time code for the movie discussion itself in the episode description. There are occasional long pauses throughout this review, and just because the natural flow of the conversation is pretty crucial in a lot of places, we're leaving everything in, so just don't be alarmed if you hear dead air. Also, our guest today, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, we mentioned it briefly, but his website is comicscomicscomics.blog, so please check that site out. And just a quick reminder that our coffee is currently on sale for about one more week. This episode should be coming out around September 23rd, 2022, which means the coffee is only going to be available for one more week because it's only available for the month of September 2022. So head on over to rootlesscoffee.com. That's R-O-O-T-L-E-S-S-C-O-F-F-E-E dot C-O-M. Head over to the collaborations page and scroll down. You'll see our coffee label there with the Scary Stuff podcast on it. And we appreciate the support. Thank you so much for checking out this episode, and buckle up! Hello, 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 and welcome to a very special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dollinger, joined by co-host Jacob Jones-Goldstein. Oh, we are in for a treat tonight. <laughs> and Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody. Let's have some fun. Yes, let's. <laughs> <laughs> like we said at the top, this is a very special episode. This is episode 52, or if I'm going to Dan Didio, uh, episode 52, uh. I don't know why, but my Dan Didio is basically just the principal from uh, Beavis and Butthead, basically. <laughs> <sighs> oh, you kids! <sighs> and to celebrate, we got a very special guest. So, we do have a very special guest. Very special? Very special. <laughs> he was so special, he came before you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> So if you've been listening to our pod for a while, you would have heard him on episodes 11. He reviewed Phantasms 1 and 2 with us. And on episode 13, he reviewed Fallen Angels with us. I'm so, so sorry. And you would also know him as the proprietor of comicscomicscomics.blog. But please join me in welcoming Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. Hey, guys. Yay! Thanks for having me back. Remember when we told you last time we'd have you back on for a good movie? We, we still will eventually. I like this movie. Uh, this is a good movie. No matter what you think of this, it's got to be a step up from Fallen Angels. It is definitely better than Fallen Angels, for sure. Jake. I mean, I'm going to say yes. I know, but come on. <laughs> All right, yes, it's better than Fallen Angels. Okay. <laughs> but not by as much as you would think. 
The production values alone are better than Fallen Angels. Hell yeah. Oh, I am so excited for this episode. So, <laughs> so if you looked at the episode description, you can see we're doing Constantine from 2005, the Keanu Reeves movie. Why are we doing this? So, if you listened to our Boggy Creek review, which was episode 50, where we were celebrating our 50th episode, you can hear... The super comic nerds Jake and I realize in real time that that means we're two episodes away from episode 52. Uh. Why does the number 52 matter? So, Nick, if, if you haven't eaten, you can just go fix a sandwich. It's going to be a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you're not a longtime fan of comics, specifically DC Comics, a while back there was a crossover by the name of Infinite Crisis, which was a sequel to... You know, sequel by a large window of time but it was a sequel to a follow-up to the original crisis on infinite earth which i guess is kind of the er comic crossover you know mega event and also john constantine's second appearance yep and following that event so you know a lot of these big events they do some variety of reboot or soft reboot or at least you know in the case of zero hour play with the timeline a bit or stuff like that in the case of infinite crisis their gimmick coming out of it was all the books skipped ahead one year which allowed them to sort of reset the status quo to some degree if they wanted to. And to cover what the intervening time was, they launched a weekly book. The first time I think in a long, long time there was any sort of weekly book, and the book was aptly named 52. So it started with issue one, went all the way up to 52. And it was by four comic creators, were written by four comic creators. It was written by Grant Morrison, Mark Wade, Jeff Johns, and Greg Rucka. Love Grant Morrison. And breakdowns for it, and we'll mention this at the top because he's probably going to come up again, but a lot of the artistic breakdowns for it were done by, uh, I don't know if I can't say friend of the pod, but <laughs> idol of the pod, I guess, Keith Giffen. Lie to him. Lie to him. So anyway, spinning out of this, DC editor-in-chief at the time, at least I think, that, uh, I don't know what his title was at that point. but, but it's like president of it. at yeah. the time, maybe? Yeah, it might have been president at that point. I You'd think I'd remember, but I can't. But anyway, Dan Didio. Uh, um, he, he sort of became hooked on the, the the idea of 52 and the idea of weekly series. So when 52 ended, they immediately went into another weekly series called Countdown. Countdown started at 52 and counted down, as the title implied, to zero, which led into another event, which was called Final Crisis. And then Final Crisis from there... Kind of reset some of the status quo again. I think one of the big, just to interject really quickly, oh, yeah. one of the things that got involved in with a lot of this stuff, and I think was the real, real driving thing behind, you know, Infinite Crisis 52 countdown was the, the very, very easy concept to understand of diminishing returns, which apparently Dan Didio doesn't understand. Anyway, carry on. <sighs> no, that, yeah, that, cause that's gonna come up here real quick, cause. Yeah, so they went into Final Crisis. That reset the status quo for, uh, what was it, like a year, a year and a half? Because they that. killed Batman for all of four months. Then they went in also into another sort of big crossover called Blackest Night. But anyway, so spinning out of that, towards the end of that, there was a Flash event called Flashpoint, which I think everyone's familiar now because I guess they did some variation of it in the CW Flash series where yep. it was, a, I guess, a crossover. I know they did a variation on Crisis as well, but I think they did a variation on Flashpoint and the upcoming Flash movie, assuming it doesn't get written off as bad debt by Warner Brothers Discovery like they're doing with a bunch of other stuff, is going to be a Flashpoint-ish story. There was also the animated 
movie, the Flashpoint. Yeah, they call it the Flashpoint Paradox, I think, is what they called it. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you the Flashpoint CW was fun. I did not stick around long enough for a crisis. So when Flashpoint was first announced, and Jeff Johns was writing The Flash at the time, I think he was still on the main book, but he was certainly the writer of the Flashpoint mini. It was announced as this Flash-specific event, and then they were also going to take a month, and all the books were going to go on pause for a month, and they were going to do a month of tie-in issues. It was, all right, whatever. They've done that before. Kind of a fun thing to tie into this Flash event. And then all of a sudden, and Flashpoint was underway at this point, they announced that at the end of Flashpoint, they were introducing the new 52. So this is where the number 52 rears its head again. <laughs> so... Dan DiDio instituted a line-wide reboot. So as a result of Flashpoint, they did another you know, big change to the continuity. And we'll get into what that entailed here in a second, because it actually very much applies to the character we're talking about today. Quite a bit. But they restarted all the books for new number ones. So they led off with the new Justice League. And then from there, there were 51 other titles. So in this case, the quote, new 52 was... 52 launch books that all launched within the span of five weeks. Justice League was one week ahead, and then everything else was spaced out over the course of four weeks. Reset the whole line, and this is where sort of the jokiness of this obsession with the new 52 is really kind of stuck. Because why were there 52 books? Uh, it's just it, presumably because new 52 sounded catchy. There's also 52 Earths. Oh, that, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that bit of the, yeah, they redid the multiverse. So there were 52 multiverses. So we want to have the multiverse, but we want to have rules on it. Yeah, periodically DC, the original event, Crisis on Infinite Earths back in 1985, was the original comics event. It was the, the first company-wide crossover. It was, the, it was a big deal. And it was done by, you know, super talents. You know, it was George Perez and Marv Wolfman. And, you know, it's one of the all-time great series. And what it did is it took the multiverse that existed, like all of the DC history before that, and siphoned it down into one world, one universe. It cleaned up continuity. And then over the, you know, 20 years after so, continuity, various things they would launch, hypertime. Or... Oh, you, you, you beat me to it. <laughs> you beat me to it. I loved hypertime. Because the whole principle of hypertime was Mark Wade's solution to continuity fuck-ups was, fuck it. <laughs> yep. Oh my god. Hypertime is amazing. Hypertime's solution was time is a river. And you know, there's multiple timelines and they're all just flowing into each other. So if there's ever a continuity fuck-up, hypertime. It was just this band-aid that automatically solved any continuity issue ever. Well, my favorite thing about Hypertime is that it's a direct result of DC very much wanting to fold Kingdom Come into the regular universe because it spawned from the Kingdom, which was the crossover, which was a crossover essentially sequel to Kingdom Come. Kingdom Come was another one of these big books. It was an important book that came out. It was an Elseworlds title. And Elseworlds was the imprint, essentially an imprint, where DC could tell stories about, you know, their characters in different ways. like. Uh, Superman Red Sun, which I think there was another animated series for that, was an Elseworlds book. Well, Kingdom Come was one of those that hit like, you know, a nuclear bomb because it's one of the best comics ever written. And it was written by Mark Wade and drawn by Alex Ross. And Alex Ross is, you know, you might know him uh, or know that name. He's one of the famous. He's a painter, essentially. And it's one of the most beautiful books of all time. I'm a big Kingdom Come fan. I even read the novelization. By Elliot S. Magan of yep. Miracle Monday. Yep. And 
what the kingdom did was show you who the real talent behind kingdom come was because it sucked <laughs> it wasn't and that bad wasn't that good wasn't that good but it wasn't that bad and so but and anyway, Mike that was <laughs> we were just talking about him with daniel crow secret wars covers mike zach the original uh have you had a snickers guy there's gonna be so many comic convention references in this episode like I said, Nick, you really should just make a sandwich. Hey, you know, I get it. A guy liked weekly issues in the 52 weeks in the year, and that became a number. That's cool. It's- <laughs> but it became such an overwhelming theme number for no reason for whatsoever. For no reason. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it just kept... Ha- I So, and, and I think the part of the reason that we had to have Jer on this episode is, I mean, we've been making 52 jokes for ages, but the, we were at the Baltimore Comic Con a few years back. <laughs> And we're riding up an escalator. It's the three of us. It's Eric, Jer, and I. And we spot coming down Dan Didio. So we immediately start having a conversation about how many steps there are in the escalator. Arriving at the conclusion loudly as he passed that there were 52 steps. I don't think he looked up, but he heard I, I was really it. expecting a, huh. <laughs> he's not actually that, huh, but uh, he, he's he, a nice he has dude. this very strong New York accent. So. Yeah, he, he very much Whoa. loves comics. It's it's clear how much he loves comics. He just, he got stuck on this number to the just hilarious effect. And the new 52 was an adventure. Well, it, it also <sighs> did what DC wanted it to do. It generated a ton of interest early on. And that translated into sales for quite a while. Yeah. And it also gave Rob Liefeld a chance to write and draw Hawkman. So not everything about it was okay. <laughs> yeah. And so I didn't say it was all good. <laughs> and to that effect, if anyone is curious about stuff behind the new 52 recently, so Dan Didio, as of uh, two years ago or so, is no longer at DC Comics, had a long run there. But now Dan Didio is working with Frank Miller on a little comic company and they're going to be putting out a series of titles as part of that dan didio did an interview with john suntress of word balloon and if you're curious about it i would highly recommend checking out that interview because one of the things speaking of line-wide reboots is at the end of dan didio's tenure there was almost another big line-wide event which was known as 5g and we got parts of 5g but not all of it as intended. And one of the things Dan Didio goes over in that interview is he breaks down what 5G was going to be, basically. So to circle back to the New 52 for what Jerry mentioned, Dan Didio mentions in that interview what everyone always basically assumed the reason behind the New 52 was, but it was never really stated. But the way Dan Didio put it was, we did the New 52 because I didn't want to be the last president of DC Comics. Because basically sales were in the shitter. There was a regime change, if I recall correctly, at Warner Brothers, and they basically said, you got to up sales. So the New 52 was kind of a Hail Mary of rebooting all these books in a very short window of time, you know, to give a shot in the arm to sales numbers. And in that respect, it was successful. And I will say in their defense, they said, I have very mixed feelings on Dan Didio. But what I say in his defense is in the time frame they had to accomplish it, I do not envy him having to, to launch 52 books. As a result of this, the issue I take with is he talks about how that one of the things he wanted to do in the new 52 was you know, make everything feel fresh and new. And it's like, motherfucker, Scott Lobdell wrote five fucking books and Liefeld wrote three. Oh. It wasn't free. You went back to the 90s for this. It wasn't that bad, but man, it was a real mixed bag 
I thought, the New 52. But the books that were good were the books that were largely unaffected by the reboot. So coming into the New 52, it was like, all right, well, what's the new continuity? And the answer to that was, "Uh," because they were just figuring it out as they went. Like, the big key was that Superman and Batman were the first two superheroes. Yeah, they reset everything, so Superman was now the first superhero. So, But everyone else... Still did stuff, but they had to do it in secret. So now, like, Stormwatch was a thing. We're going to get to that in a second. But Stormwatch had operated for centuries in secret. There was Demon Knight, which was one of the good books. One of the ones Paul Cornell did, um, spinning out of it. Which was the same thing. The shadow group of superheroes on the periphery throughout time. But, like, one of the things they came out of it was, all right, well, basically all of the Bat-Universe continuity is still there, except it all happened in five years. It's like... So he literally went through a new Robin every year. <laughs> just Man, burn through children. It's like a one-year internship, and then you're out, <laughs> if you survive. So for the, the Stormwatch mentioned, Stormwatch being a title from Wildstorm, one of the big changes of the New 52 is that New 52 posits that there were three big timelines that were separated. There's this whole bullshit double-page splash with a character named Pandora in the final issue of Flashpoint, explaining that there were three timelines that were separated and they need to be merged back together. And one is the main DC universe. One is the Wildstorm universe, which is, a, for those who don't know, is a subset of characters, which were Jim Lee's division at Image Comics, which when he left Image, he took the brand with him and folded it under DC. And the third universe was the Vertigo universe. <sighs> Vertigo was the mature reader's label wing of DC Comics that skewed largely supernatural and horror Not all of it, but... I like it. They did... I know Nick has read Transmet, which was through oh, a subdivision yeah. called Helix. Helix. Love Transmet. Transmet was originally Helix and then folded into Vertigo when Helix didn't go anywhere after a while. Didn't Vertigo do the Invisibles too? Yes. I like the Invisibles. Invisibles was it? Sandman was a Vertigo book. That's the one Love everybody Sandman. Would know. Yep, Sandman, Swamp Thing. We talked a bit about Swamp Thing. Eventually, yeah, Swamp Thing and Constantine, or at the time, his book was called Hellblazer. Those were two of the books that actually predated the launch of Vertigo. Basically, when Vertigo launched, they were folded in under that branding. Wasteland was another one that wasn't Vertigo, but it kind of helped trigger Vertigo. I have the first issue of that that I picked, and I haven't read it yet. But I want to. That's the is it the John Ostrander one? It's an anthology, yeah. Okay. Anthology, because you said Ostrander. Yeah, I can talk. <laughs> anthology. <laughs> but now I like anthology for an Ostrander book. <laughs> and the, the Vertigo imprint was dead at the time, right? There were no Vertigo books when New 52 happened, right? It was still around. Like that Stephen King vampire book was Vertigo. Yeah, American Vampire was Vertigo. So, yeah. so it was Fables was Vertigo. That was still coming out then. Hellblazer was still around. So, so when the New 52 launched, it specifically was in September of 2011. The Hellblazer book didn't end until 2013 with issue 300. Yeah. So the Vertigo line was still going, but for a long time prior to the New 52, a lot of the Vertigo characters, it was never formally acknowledged that they were in a separate universe and like none of the old stories where them were non-canonical. But for the most part, folks didn't use Constantine much at all in the main books. Well, there was a rule that Constantine was not allowed in the, the regular books. He started out in them. He started out in the regular, in Swamp Thing 37 and then Crisis. And he, there was a couple of other appearances, but 
even like when Doom Patrol restarted before that also became a Vertigo book, Morrison wanted Constantine to hang out with him and they wouldn't let him do it because Constantine was not allowed in the DC universe proper until, ironically enough, right before the New 52, because Brightest Day, the Brightest Day which followed Blackest Night, he showed up and it was his first appearance in the in the main DC universe. That's right. And then he was in that miniseries that followed it, which was like Quest for Swamp Thing or something. Oh, something like that. And yeah. then with the new 52, it wasn't a launch book, but he was part of Justice League Dark. Yes. His own book came a little bit later. And Justice League Dark was being written by Pete Milligan, who was the writer of Hellblazer right. at the time. So he was writing both the... Because Constantine in, in, in Vertigo books sort of aged real time. He was like in his 60s by this point, or late 50s, early 60s. And the version in the new 52 was a much younger version of Constantine that was also a superhero and much closer to what you get in this movie we're eventually going to talk about I promise Nick <laughs> whatever it's going to edit in sandwich munching noises Nick is just looking at his phone going remember when I used to have a movie podcast <laughs> <laughs> hey I like the Constantine shows I'm going to say right now and everything with Constantine should be Matt Ryan we're getting to him we're getting to him <laughs> Sort of, because I barely, I only have a little bit of Matt Ryan reference, but that, we're, we're getting to it. I'm waiting. But so, yeah, so he became part of the DC Unit proper in the New 52 with Justice League Dark, originally written by Pete Milligan. Eventually, Jeff Lemire took over with like issue eight or nine, coincidentally, when that book got good. Uh, sorry, I, I like Peter Milligan a lot occasionally. Pete Milligan is one of the most, and this is just my opinion, so he is one of the most binary... Yeah. Comic writers there are. When he's on, he's on. Human Target and a lot of those you know, other Vertigo books, great. But when he's off, it's rough. <laughs> yeah, like his shade, The Changing Man for Vertigo was terrific back with the Bocciolo art and his Animal Man was good. But yeah, when he uh, when he phones it in, man, he's fucking calling in from a big distance. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so... And eventually they relaunched a Constantine solo book, which was called Constantine the Hellblazer. They wanted his name in it and still with the reference to Hellblazer. Well, it was just Constantine at first, yeah. Yeah, and that was the Ming Doyle comic. Yep, second one. Second one was Ming God, they, they've yeah, relaunched yeah, so, him like five times since. That's what makes it so apt for 52 is because the new 52 was, it was delayed, but it was basically the death knell for the Hellraiser comic as it existed. Now it kept going another year until early 2013 but then they decided all right we're going to end it we're going to fold the the character was already folded into the main dcu like jake mentioned but they were going to give him a solo title that would not be a mature reader's title and the first one was basically started the next month like a month after hellblazer ended they started up constantine it was just called constantine initially it was going to be written by robert venditti who was switched out at the last minute by Ray Fawkes and Jeff Lemire. So that book started in 2013. And then after this, Constantine's existence as a book kind of becomes intrinsically tied to major DC events because it's basically with every major DC event, they relaunch the book. So they launch a new number one late in the new 52, makes it to 2015 when then the book gets relaunched as Constantine the Hellblazer. So they put Hellblazer in the subtitle. Like Jake mentioned, that was a book co-written by Ming Doyle and also James Tynan IV, who we've talked about before on the pod, who's now... Riley Rossmo did the art. Yep, Riley Rossmo and art, and Tynan is now doing 
well, he's doing a Sandman universe book, and that's going to come up here shortly, but he's doing Nice House on the Lake. He's doing House of Slaughter, uh, which is a spinoff of Something is Killing the Children. So, yeah, it's he's an enormous horror comics writer at the moment and also terrific. All those books I just mentioned are very, very good. So we got another new number one, and that was part of the DCU initiative, YOU, which I actually won't get into it because we'll, that'll be a whole, like a whole 10 minute tangent. But I thought that was one of the better like I liked a lot of the books that came out of that initiative. Yeah, it was just confusing. <laughs> and then they did another big DC event called Rebirth, which was kind of which a, you can see the Rebirth poster over my brother's shoulder if you uh, if you were able to see our cameras, which I can, but you can't. Oh, that's what. Yeah, it's on the ceiling. Yeah, Rebirth was sort of their attempt to. All right, we're going to kind of go. I don't say back to basics, but kind of undo some of the elements of the New Fifty Two that had proven to be unpopular and restore some of the continuity that had been written out. And so the book was relaunched again. It was relaunched with a new number one. I think it was just called was it called Hellblazer again? I forget. There was the, it was Hellblazer Rebirth, and then I think it was just Hellblazer after that. So Simon Oliver was writing it then. And then in 2019, it got relaunched again as part of the Sandman universe. So at this point, they had the Vertigo line, as it was known, was basically dead. But there now existed Black Label, which was has its own history, but ostensibly took the place of Vertigo as a mature reader's line. And wouldn't you have loved to have been at the pitch meeting for DC Black? So what do you want to do with DC Black? Show Batman's dick. Okay, well, let's go. Wasn't the one where they were okay showing his dick, but it was not okay to show him going down on Catwoman? Well, that yeah, the Catwoman thing that spun out of it was a joke that supposedly they, they were forced to cut from the Harley Quinn show. The Bat Dick thing, so yeah, there's I think it was the launch book for a black yeah. label was Batman Damned. Which Constantine was in. Oh, man, I, I forgot he was in that. Brian Azzarello wrote it. Everybody's favorite Hellblazer writer, Brian Azzarello. Ugh. What was the big theme from your run on, on Hellblazer, Brian? Dog fucking. <sighs> Sorry. No, no, no. So, like, how, <sighs> how, many, how many of our listeners do you think are going to get that particular reference? I hope there's at least one, because otherwise I just sound like a weirdo. Just curious how many are still listening. <laughs> Nick just rolled a tumbleweed through his apartment to simulate how many listeners are still there. I'll put the time code for the movie discussion in the episode description. <laughs> Look, Jerry's a comics podcast guest superstar, so we have him. We have to talk about comics. We're trying to cater to his brand. We need his the- listeners to listen to us. We're trying to expand, Nick. <laughs> My listeners. Nick is just sitting there in his head going, nerd, 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 nerd. <laughs> no, no. I have no problem with loving about comics, and I have no problems with people discussing comics. Honestly, my biggest problem is with your hatred for this movie because you're nerding out on it too much. That's the only part I call you a nerd on. <laughs> oh, we'll get to that concept, too. I promise. Got like five more minutes is my estimate. We're, we're close. We're close. Next, get to the part with Jenna Coleman from the Sandman show. We're getting to- <laughs> Look, I, I figure if we give the full history of Constantine in comics and DC 52, everybody else will hate this movie appropriately. So I'm trying to do a service. <laughs> so book is relaunched as part of Sandman universe. Lasted about a year and it was canceled, I believe, at issue 12. And it was partly due to COVID. Because of COVID. Yeah, it was good, too. Like that was one of the better ones. That run. I read the first issues of, because I did what I always do when they do these big line wine reboots is I get all the first issues, read some of them, and then forget to actually subscribe to most of the books. But I did read the first issues of all these various Constantine books. I remember being meh on what was basically the new 52 one. I liked the Doyle and Tynan one. I remember being eh on the Simon Oliver Rebirth one. 
But I really dug the Cy Spurrier one for Sandman Rebirth. It had a fabulous art team, which Aaron Campbell, who's, if you're a horror comics fan, he's done a lot. But in particular, check out a series he did for Image called Infidel, which is terrific. And the colors on Sandman Universe on Aaron Campbell were Jordi Belair, who's fucking phenomenal and is currently doing Nice House on the Lake on top of many other books. And if you like Cy Spurrier, if you recognize his name, he's doing a horror book for Vault at the moment called The Rush, which I very much enjoyed and would definitely say check out. So that's a book that was sadly cut off at 12 issues, but it's pretty recent. It's collected in two trades. I would definitely say check it out. And then there was also a Black Label mini from Tom Taylor and artist Derek Robertson called Hellblazer Rise and Fall. And that came out in late 2020. It was a three-issue mini, and I only read the first issue of that, surprise. But I did really like the first issue of it. But I, I tend to like Tom Taylor. All, all three issues, it was it was very good. There's also a um, one-off in the DC Truth and Justice series that was uh, written by a friend of the pod, Danny Lohr. Yes. And that one's very good as well. Hey, Danny. Yes. That, that focuses heavily on Papa Midnight, who's in the, the film. Yes, that is a fantastic three-issue mini, uh, The Truth and Justice. I think it was digital first, so it should be readily available digital, but get the print versions if you can because the art's great too. But Danny is a huge Constantine fan, and that comes through in the story, so that's fantastic. We had Matt Johnson on as well when we did our review of the thing, and Matt wrote a Papa Midnight series back in, I think it was the early 2000s or so. It was 2000. It was around the time of the movie, if I remember. That mini is, I think, terrific. That was definitively Vertigo. Yes, that one was Vertigo. It's a five-issue mini, so definitely go check that out. So I, you mentioned the Cy Spurrier one and recommending that one, why you didn't like the other ones. And I can tell you, and it's this, the problem they've had since that, that very issue of Brightest Day, is that they turned him into a superhero, and he's not. And that version of it, I think, comes directly from this movie, which treats him more like a superhero than the character actually is, which has always been part of my problem with... Well, well, we'll get into the interpretation of the character in the film, I, but that version in the film is much closer to the versions in the New 52 and a lot of those series. Ming Doyle kind of started skewing back towards an actual horror character, and then Cy Spurrier was like, I, what the fuck is this hero shit? And he wrote <laughs> a, you know, a horror comic about this character who's, you know, not a superhero. And it's a, an important division. Like, even, like, Jeff Lemire writing them in Justice League Dark and the Justice League Dark backup story that was in JLA recently. I'm about to say, friend of the pod, Ron V, also wrote him in Justice League Dark. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, jo yeah, Ron V wrote that one, and he. But anyway, I'm getting confused. But yeah, Ron V's run is very good, but it still has that inherent flaw of him. Like you can't have him in Justice League in any. You know, I have problems with the Justice League Dark nomenclature anyway. But he's not a superhero. He is not a superhero. He is in no way a superhero. And that's the big problem I have with various adaptions of them. But anyway. Related to what you just said, and we're going to get into the movie here momentarily, but I do want to throw out, while we're talking about recent runs, there's one I left out, which is not one that gets cited very frequently, but is one of my personal favorite John Constantine appearances, which would be his presence in issue one of DC Universe versus Masters of the Universe. Written by pod favorite Keith Giffen. Oh my god. Now, wow. <laughs> isn't he the guy the guy who opens the portal between the worlds in that book? Something like that? Uh, Black Alice is, but he is, uh, He-Man's mother <laughs> goes to John Constantine for help. John Constantine, who is apparently a legend of sorts in Eternia, because there is a page wow. 
where Skeletor is meeting with Black Alice, and they're in the House of Mystery, if I remember correctly. And Black Alice, who is a DCU character, is bringing Skeletor up to speed on the DCU. And she has a picture of the Justice League, and she says, here you go. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and some guys whose names I forget. I think one of them has the word green stuck in there somewhere. Come to think of it, I think Mr. Green Jeans, or whatever he calls himself, split the group a while ago. Skeletor. Now, Mystics! Black Alice. That'd be the other Justice League. Skeletor. There's more than one? Black Alice. Yeah, they're popping up like Sun Dollar franchises. Got this one, one that added America to their name as if that makes them special, and one full of Mystics and Mystic Wannabes. Which she then elaborates, that's the one I'd be worried about. That Constantine guy. Gives me the creeps, that one does. Constant Jonathan Constantine? Get out! You know him? I know of him. I thought him a myth. <laughs> he is, if he is as told of, not a hero. Far from it. There's this whole page of fucking Skeletor talking about John Constantine. I know that motherfucker. <laughs> Reading it was the wildest shit. This first issue is bonkers. It also has John Constantine's introduction as him showing up, lighting a cigarette, saying, Skeletor, that name sounds ominous. <laughs> this first issue is bonkers. I think I have to buy it. The first issue Keith Giffen was able to write solo. He plots the rest of it, but the second issue on, they brought in Tony Bedard to script. Because that <laughs> raw Keith Giffen... Fucking with two different franchises at once must have been like, all right, we need a filter. <laughs> One joke of his got through because I went to the Baltimore Comic-Con. Keith Giffen used to be a regular at that con until the instant where lie to him sprang from, at which point he hasn't been back. But someday we'll tell that story. I got him to sign this book specifically. And he said, oh, let me tell you all about this book. And and he had stories to tell that weren't bad, but were interesting and, and you know, one of the things he mentioned was a specific joke of his that he wanted to get through, and it gets through in issue two. And th so thankfully this didn't get rewritten, is Constantine ends up teleporting He-Man and Tila and He-Man's mother into the Batcave. And Evelyn, Evelyn is also with him. And so Constantine's like, all right, yeah, it's just, there's no smoking in here, so I got to remember not to light a cigarette or something. But they're all just looking around the Batcave, and Evelyn's looking up and sees the big-ass dinosaur and says, I don't know who he is, but I like his sense of style. That's not the joke. The joke is the next panel, which is Tila looking at all these glass cases of Robin costumes from all the dead Robins. And at which point Tila says, we need to leave. I think this guy kills kids. Ah. <laughs> that joke made it in. So God, I love Keith Giffen. We had to get our nod to Keith Giffen. So if you want a really left fucking field Constantine comic, get DCU versus Masters of the Universe or whatever the fuck it's called. Just get the first issue, which Keith's writes entirely and there's some gold in there i always think about that with like the inferior five and stuff with keith giffen because I, I always think he he's really great at pitches and they're like all right we'll do that and then they give him free reign and they get the first script and the editor's just like god damn it again <laughs> <laughs> so yeah let's get into the movie itself do we have to because the comic part's fun to talk about Best part of the movie is the Vertigo logo that shows up in the beginning. I thought I came here to talk about a movie. Well, this is one of the the other reasons I wanted to do Constantine. Because I knew how Jake felt about Constantine back when it first came out. Which is a it, surprise because I'm usually so subtle in my opinions and keep this shit to myself. You're pretty you know, reserved on it. You know, it's you really got to twist your arm to get. You, you can't see it, folks at home, but Nick almost just swallowed his tongue. <laughs> So 
when Constantine came out, Jake had thoughts. But that was all the way back in 2005. Mm -hmm. And I was very curious because I I was looking forward to that eventually we're going to do this on the pod. And I was very curious to see how everyone would think of it. I was curious to see how I would think of it because I hadn't seen it until maybe 2006. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it when it hit DVD. So I was curious to see how everyone thought of it. So again, as always, full spoiler podcast. Spoilers from here on out. We're actually going to talk about a movie now. Yeah, so what everybody think? I like it. I like it. My third note is I fucking hate this movie so much. I like watching Jake's animosity grow. <laughs> all right, so we all right, we get we just gave the full history of constant well, you know, basically constantly publication. If you want to get into the character's history, I'm willing to do that instead of talking about this movie. Any takers? <laughs> No. No hands went no. up. Okay. Nick, fetch the tumbleweed. No. <laughs> Just like, I will turn this mic off and go home. <laughs> Some of it's going to come up in the course of the discussion. One story arc in particular. Dangerous Habits. Which is one you gave me. Which is, because going into this movie, this isn't going to be a long story, I promise. But, like I mentioned, kind of the thing we bonded over, Jake and I, was comics. And when Constantine was coming out, I don't remember you being overtly negative, but I remember you... Having some skepticism at Keanu Reeves playing Constantine. Oh, yeah. I was willing to give him a chance. <laughs> yeah, but you mentioned it was like, uh, Keanu Reeves, I'm, I'm not sure about this casting. And I'd said, you know, well, I know the character a little bit because at that point I had read Crisis, I think. I had seen bits and pieces of him. Uh, he might have appeared in the Brian K. Vaughn Swamp Thing run. If so, I read him there, but I can't quite remember. That was a long time ago. But... I said I had never actually read Hellblazer, the main series. It was one of the mature readers books that by the time I was actually mature enough to read Vertigo books, that one was already into like, you know, the hundreds and two hundreds of numberings. So I was like, all right, well, I'm not seems like a lot of shit to catch up on. So I'm not going to try that one. So I'd asked about Hellblazer comics and you came and you gave me a stack of trades, which were the Jamie Delano run. Original Sins. Yep. Original Sins, which was the first arc that kicked off Hellblazer. And then the second trade, or the second writer who was in those trades, was Garth Ennis, who wrote Dangerous Habits, which is the main story that influences this movie, or at least one very particular element that runs through this movie. And really, every bit of Constantine fiction outside of the comic sense, very much so. Yeah, I still have not read a lot of Constantine. The I've read some of the Mike Carey stuff, and because... We love Mike Carey here. I, all his engines. I've read that. The graphic novel. It's great. So I, you gave me context for this movie right before I saw it. So that was, and again, one of the other comic things you, you let me. So that was awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Speaking about Keanu Reeves and whether he was right for this movie or not, it is worth noting this was almost a Nicolas Cage film. Yep. Uh-huh. Dear God. <laughs> I can't even imagine just... That would have put it over the edge, I think, for me. You know, Keanu Reeves is the wrong choice to begin with. I mean, it just has to be a more irate British man. It's the way it has to be. But Nicolas Cage would have broke my goddamn mind if he had run with this film. Nicolas Cage and Tarsem Singh directing. Yep. yep. <laughs> and, and Tarsem Singh, apparently, according to trivia, said, yeah, this isn't going to turn out the way I wanted it to. So Tarsem bailed, <laughs> and then Nicolas Cage bailed. You know, I got to be 100% honest. I don't think my opinion would have changed much if it was Nicolas Cage or Keanu Reeves. We know. I mean. We know. (laughs) Like, I don't think Nicolas Cage is a good choice for it by any stretch, but I don't think 
Keanu Reeves is a good choice for the character either. But the upshot of that is that they're not actually doing Constantine. They just called it Constantine. The two things don't have anything to do with each other. There's elements that they cribbed, but that's about it. Like the character of Constantine in the film and the character of Constantine in the comics aren't, I mean, it might as well be, you know, call it Superman for all that they have to do with each other. It's just the name. And it, all right. So something Nick mentioned before, and, and clearly we're 45 minutes into this and we've been talking about the comics. So nobody is going to believe what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't like this movie on its own merits. I hate it as an adaption of the comics because it's not actually an adaption of the comics. It is a separate film about a separate character and a separate concept that cribs a couple of ideas from the comics and the name. But they don't have anything to do with each other. Like the character in the comics, you know, which has got a fucking 40 year history or 30, whatever, 25 year history. I don't know, 85 at the time, the 20 year history, because this came out in 2005. They just don't have anything to do with each other. They're not remotely the same thing. But also stripping that. And one of the things I did watching this is like when I sat down to watch it this time, because for years since this has been out, my criticism is instantly written off as, well, you like the source material. So, you know, it's not a good enough adaption for you. Instantly written off as that, which is stuck in my craw and probably made me hate the since movie more 2005. since. <laughs> since 2005. Because, and we, we talked about this on the on our uh, Boggy Creek episode where this pod's alternate title is the podcast where we never let shit go. What's the line Lucifer has in this? Is the old name still, still ring true or some shit like that? Is the old wound still run deep? My favorite line of the movie. So I I sat down distinctly just I, I, I am taking it because as I as I've just said, this has nothing to do with the comic. Just watching it on its own merits. And hey, I mean, I think I'm doing that. Nobody's gonna believe I'm doing that. But I still don't like it. I just don't like anything about the way this movie goes about what it does. I don't think the plot, it's got enough holes in it that it annoys me. There's a lot of random stuff that gets thrown out there that's not really explained or part of it. And then it, the elements at Cribs don't really matter at all to the overall product. Like the character of Papa Midnight, they don't really do anything with I protect the balance. What the fuck are you talking about? And he's just there to offer the chair. That's it. Right. And what do they need the chair for? So he can see some shit that he, it's, but also like the lung cancer thing, which is, is very specifically cribbed from Dangerous Habits. Dangerous Habits is, uh, I think it's Garth, I want to say it's his first couple issues. It may be his second arc, but I'm pretty sure it's his first. Constantine finds out he's, he has lung cancer and he's dying and he sets about saving himself. And the way he eventually does that is he sells his soul three times. And when they all come to collect, they're like, well, fuck you. And then the other ones are like, well, fuck you, too. And then they realize that Constantine can't die. And he, he is in the process of dying while this is happening. So they they heal him. And that is cribbed in this. You know, you get the subplot about him having cancer. And at the end, Peter Stromar's Satan or Lucifer pulls the, the cancer out of him. My question is, is, he's not dying of cancer. He's dying because he slid his wrists. So what the fuck does the cancer subplot add to this movie at all? Other than at the end, that little quib about him chewing gum. No, 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 no. He slit his wrist for an immediate audience. <laughs> and right, then He slit Satan, his wrist to kill himself. Satan, yeah, and then Satan uh, heals the wounds and the, and the cancer. Right. But what I'm saying is, 
You don't need the cancer. It doesn't add anything. He slit his wrists. That's why he's dying. And he cures the cancer at the same time so he will live longer. But there's, it's never discussed. Like, you've got a week. You're dying of cancer right now. He kills himself, which is the whole point of it because he's damned in this because he killed himself as a kid and came back and blah, blah, blah. The cancer storyline adds absolutely nothing to this, and it doesn't end up being even slightly relevant. I, I wouldn't agree with that. What does it add? It's his motivation throughout the movie. His motivation throughout the movie is saving his own soul because he knows he's damned. Yeah. Right, because he's dying of cancer. He's in that but, is heightened by his oncoming death. Yes. So he acts a little bit more because he's got cancer, but it doesn't really play into it too much. I mean, uh, if you want to say that's the motivation... Except the motivation is he says it in the end. Please tell me this isn't about a girl. Eh, it's mostly about a girl. So the motivation throughout, as it's portrayed, is helping her, which is fine. I'm just saying the cancer subplot, which is, is more of a nod to the comics than anything that, that actually affects the film in any way. Like if it was gone, it's the same movie. It would be less. It would be dimmer. It would not be. How as, could it be dimmer? You know, it, it adds pathos to Yeah. This movie is already dull as shit. Nick, do you have the production details handy? I do. <laughs> and I say that because I, I think working through that's going to illuminate just some things kind of related to the discussion we're having, or, or right. a little bit of it. Well, let me get started here. So we're talking about Constantine from 2005, and it was directed by Francis Lawrence, who also directed I Am Legend, Hunger Games Catching Fire, and Mockingjay. And, uh... Fuck ton of music videos before this. Yes. Yeah, yes, like he did. This was his feature film <laughs> debut. And before this, he did videos for Bad Religion, Coolio, Genuine, Aerosmith, Jennifer Lopez, Destiny's Child, Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake. But this was his big cinematic you know, debut as far as a narrative feature. But I also wanted to mention something that I didn't see on his IMDb that's randomly on his wiki. Quote from his Wikipedia article, Lawrence worked as a second assistant camera on the feature Pump Up the Volume. Directed nice. by Alan Moyle prior to earning his bachelor's degree in film production at Loyola Marymount University Film School. Doesn't affect this movie, but it's a reference to pump up the volume, so I wanted to get that in there. I enjoy that. I just like that this person has two adaptions on there that are just universally beloved. This and I Am Legend, because everybody likes that one too, right? I do. I Am Legend is bad. <laughs> I Am Legend is bad. I like that movie. I've never seen it. I don't like the ending. The, the ending murders the heart of it. He's supposed to be the villain. He's not the hero. Oh, so wait, they didn't adapt it right, and that's why you don't like it? <laughs> it misses the point of the story. Folks, I'm sorry. This is going to be the shortest episode. <laughs> Never thought we'd have a sub-hour episode, but hey, <laughs> who'd have thought? Breezed right through that Constantine discussion. Completely. Anyway, we'll, leave, we'll save that for I of Legend. I'm just uh, going to sit here and be <laughs> smug about my point. No, yours is like a, a change in location and added, slight attitude changes. Like, I Am Legend's like, let's make Christ the bad guy. It's like, no, it's <laughs> you gotta get the shit backwards. That's a massive story change. Oh, we're going to talk about what you just said, but we'll do it after the rundown. Anyway, so we got written by Kevin Broadbin, who worked on Mindhunters, Glimmerman, and Siege at Judoville. Yeah, so Kevin Broadbin did the initial draft, and Kevin Broadbin's initial draft this was in development for a while. The final film came out in 2005. I think Kevin Broadbin says in his commentary track that his first draft was done in 98, 99. I feel like 98 is when I, in my research, they, it was when it was in production. But the reason I mentioned it was talking about Jake was bringing up the, the main plot point from the Garth Ennis run. That element was still in 
Kevin Broadbent's draft, sort of. I haven't read Kevin Broadbent's draft. To my knowledge, it's not available, but he mentions in the commentary that the element in the comics is the the idea is basically that if God is in three parts, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the devil is the same. The devil, there, there's a, a trinity as well. Except in their case, they don't talk to each other, <laughs> which is why Constantine is able to sell himself to all three parts and them not be aware of it until he dies. And all of a sudden, all three of them show up and say, what the fuck? Hey everyone, post-production Eric here. Just wanted to mention real quick, I hadn't read this particular story arc since 2005, so I find out later in the episode that I got some of these story details wrong, so I do get corrected. I just wanted to mention up front that some of these plot details are off, and apologies for the mix-up. So in Broadbent's draft, there was that basic element, but the three parts were, there was the, the Lucifer character, not necessarily written like Peter Stormare is here, but there was a Lucifer character. But there was also the Balthazar character in this film was supposed to be one of the pieces of the devil, one of the Trinity. And then the third one was going to be a character, I think he was called the Vermin Man, similar to the character who's made of flies. But there was going to be a third, like much more physically gross version that was going to show up. So it wasn't verbatim. It was in principle, it was the same thing from the Ennis run, but the execution of it was a little different. But that did exist in the very first draft and was then written out. So just going to throw this out there. The Vermin Man is technically in this film. The monster the, he the fights. The creature in the streets, the yeah. I, I think he mentions in the commentary that like, he calls that the Vermin Man, but I think he said in his original draft like there were two. There was another version that then shows up at the end. The one that's in this is played by Larry Cedar, and Larry Cedar is also famous for playing Cornelius Hawthorne, Pierce's dad, on two separate episodes of Community. Wow! Advanced Gay and Digital Estate Planning. So that's our community connection. The Vermin Man was Pierce's dad. And if you remember the episodes, he's the one with the ivory toupee. Two of my favorite episodes, Advanced Gay and Digital Estate Planning. Digital Estate Planning is the uh, the 8-bit video game one. So that's our community connection. It's a direct right. connection. That make you happy, Nick? Absolutely. All right. <laughs> 100%. That makes one thing tonight. That makes <laughs> yeah. Gold star, Jake. Good job. <laughs> one thing equal to the one hour of Nick's life wasted on Jake and my bullshit. <laughs> All right. It was also written by Frank A. Capello, who worked on He Was a Quiet Man, Steel Wool, and Suburban Commando. Okay. You had me scared there for a minute. <laughs> like, you're skipping something. <laughs> it's like, there's only one that matters in Frank A. Capello's filmography. That's why I saved it for last. <laughs> That's the Hulk Hogan movie, right? That is the Hulk Hogan movie, yeah. yes. What I'll say on Frank A. Capello is, well, one thing on the commentary, so Kevin Broadbent starts the commentary talking about his draft, but Frank A. Capello was noted as also being on the track. So you're initially thinking, oh, there are going to be two tracks that were recorded separately and spliced together. And then all of a sudden Broadbent is talking, and, and Capello has not introduced himself, but Capello all of a sudden chimes in like two minutes in. So you don't realize until a couple minutes in that the two writers are in the same room. And Capello came in like a couple years after Broadbent did. So it ends up making for a really interesting commentary track because in between the two were like three different writers. And I can tell you who one of them probably was. He's not credited, but on a draft of the script I have, there are credits for rewrites done by Mark Bomback. Now at this point, Mark Bomback would have done the thing people probably know him from that he did before this was the movie Godsend, which is the Robert De Niro movie about, 
I don't know. It's some weird shit with the kid. I, I saw the trailers for it way back. I've never seen it. Probably something we'll do on this pod at some point. After this, he kind of became a go-to action writer. He worked on Live Free or Die Hard. He worked on the Total Recall remake. He worked on Tony Scott's Unstoppable. He worked on the second Wolverine movie. He worked on Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, etc. But I mention all that because Frank Capello, he got a version of the script that had been through three other writers. So at this point, you had Broadbent's draft, which was based rather directly on the comics, at least according to Broadbent. Then three other writers took a pass at it, and Capello had no idea who the character was. He was just asked to rewrite this script. It was handed to him, and Capello said at that point, he said it was this very Indiana Jones script where it was just this globe-trotting adventure, and it felt like a Saturday serial. And I went to the producers and I said, this is kind of boring. And they said, oh, well, well here's, here's a comic. Maybe this will give you some context. And they gave him Dangerous Habits to read. So the producer gave it to him as reference. And he went, oh, shit. All right, so this is who the character is supposed to be. So you have all these rewrites that kind of took it away from the comic. And then the writer who kind of comes in at the end Saves it. ends up kind of reverting it back to some of the comic elements. Nice. Um, how successful they were at it and the merits of the script as a whole we'll get into. But it, <laughs> I do think it's it makes for a fun commentary having these two writers at opposite ends of the drafting process in the same room. And talking about the evolution. Also, they they're watching the movie, and I guess they had seen like a production version at some point. So they hit scenes in the movie. They're like, "Oh, they filmed this? I had no fucking idea." <laughs> and just <laughs> they're constantly surprised by shit that's in the final cut. So. Edited by Wayne Warman, who edited "I Am Legend," "The Day the Earth Stood Still," and "The Time Machine." All right, uh, Cinem- a couple. Th- sorry, go ahead. I'm not going to do ahead. this for everybody. Sorry, I'm all for it. For Wayne Warman, so specifically, A, he's the assistant editor on Necessary Roughness. Much like Pump Up the Volume, I'll mention Necessary Roughness every time I can. I don't even know if Necessary Roughness is good, but it's a sport movie. I'm trying to give Jake something happy. It's fun. I remember vaguely liking it, but... Is that like Cindy Crawford or Kelly McGillis or something is the kicker? I forget who it is. Something anyway. like that, yeah. yeah. Uh, was it... Um, I feel like Jer should know that one. Kathy Ireland? Kathy Ireland, yeah, maybe? maybe? It was Kathy yeah, Ireland. Kathy yes. Ireland. That's All right. Me. Kelly McGillis. <laughs> Oh, she was Top Gun, right? Kelly McGillis? And Witness. And Witness. So for Wayne Warman, the editor, he started working with Akiva Goldsman, who's probably on Nick's list, who's a producer on this. He edited for Akiva Goldsman. He edited Charlie's Angels, this, which he was a producer on. I Am Legend, like Nick mentioned. But then Akiva Goldsman did a couple directorial efforts, one of which was Winter's Tale. Another one was a movie called Stephanie. And that movie's currently available on Peacock, I believe. It's either Peacock or Paramount+. Plus. It's one of those. But the movie Stephanie is written by Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski, who are a pair of writers who are working on the upcoming Hellraiser remake. Yay. Not sure why I wanted to bring them up, but hey, might be a movie you want to check out and check out movies those guys have worked on. Might, might could be. Might be relevant. Who knows? Cinematography by Philippe Roslat, who also did Interview the Vampire. Beast and Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah, he did the Steve Freer's Dangerous Liaisons. He did fucking Summers Bee, uh, Mary Riley for Steve Freer's. He's got an amazing filmography. Specifically mentioned, though, that the Beast movie you're referring to is the one that just came out this year. It's the one that's Idris Elba versus Lions. Yeah, Idris Elba punching Lions in the face. Woo! I I like the last People vs. Lion movies I watched, The Ghost in the Darkness. A little trippy, but... We can do a Lion trilogy. We can do, you know... That Ghost in the Darkness, Beast, and go all the way back to Roar. Oh, I want to do Roar. Ah. 
special makeup effects artist Stan the Man Winston, who has worked on Terminator, Jurassic Park, Aliens, Galaxy Quest, and The Thing, which this episode is our John Carpenter connection. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) All right. A man who actively worked on both pieces. <laughs> a little sad you only named six, man. Usually you go out to ten for the makeup guys. I, I could do 500 for Stan the Winston. Yeah, you go up that shit off the top of your head. Jer could probably name ten off the top of his head. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but I knew all the movies you listed. And that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Music by Klaus Badelt who worked on Pirates of the Caribbean, The Time Machine, and Gladiator. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) There's our other time machine, yeah. Klaus Bedelt, I'll mention real quick that he also worked on uh, a couple movies that we'll probably do at some point on this pod, being Solomon Kane and also Dylan Dog, Dead of Night. So I've seen one of them, but I would like to do both of them on the pod. We we came close to doing both of those in our, our comics episode. They were among the final cuts. So we'll probably do both of those. I I, I want to do both, but I, I want to mention that Klaus Bedelty has a, kind of a mixed bag filmography. Um, most folks probably know him from the Pirates of the Caribbean score for the first one, which I guess it's might somewhat be in dispute how much he had to do with it, because that's the score that infamously has the liner note score overproduced by Hans Zimmer. It's literally <laughs> printed in the liner notes. It's like overproduced by, and then Hans Zimmer, of course, started doing the scores for the other ones. I think Klaus Bedelt was an additional composer for Hans Zimmer. But I would say Klaus Bedelt's best score also came out this year. He did the score for a movie called The Promise, which is a Chung Kai Go fantasy film. Uh, Chung Kai Go did Farewell My Concubine, Temptress Moon, Yellow Earth. Basically, it was a movie made in the wake when Zhang Yimou did Hero. The next year, Chung Kai Go said, I can do one of those. And he made his own big, you know, multi big budget fantasy film. His score for The Promise is really, really good. So I just wanted to give him credit for that one. Music in this was fine. Well, that might have something to do with Brian Tyler, the other music uh, note there, who worked on the 2022 version of Scream, Ready or Not, and Happy Death Day 1 and 2. <laughs> I haven't seen the new Scream, but I like those other movies. Brian Tyler has worked on a lot. I am shocked that, like, when I got to it, I said, we, we have to have had a Brian Tyler movie on here before. And I don't think we have, but he has done, nowadays, I guess he's most well known for for a while, he was Marvel's go-to composer for everything they couldn't get Alan Silvestri for, or he would pinch hit on a lot of things. He also does, I think he's still doing all the Fast and Furious movies. He did most of the Final Destination films. My first exposure to him was he did a really good score for the sci-fi Children of Dune miniseries from way back when. He also did the score for Darkness Falls, which I'll just mention for a friend of the pod, Shannon. That's the Tooth Fairy movie. <laughs> yep, that's the Tooth Fairy one. I, I like that one. <laughs> I've never it's seen ter- it. It's terrible, and I love it. <laughs> but what I think is w- that Jake, you'll appreciate, and Nick, you'll appreciate too, is how Brian Tyler got the gig. He got the gig because the temp score used for Constantine when they were putting the movie together was the score for Frailty, Ooh. which Brian Tyler did. How have we not done Frailty? Eh, maybe, maybe, maybe soon. Maybe that'll be our make good to Nick or something. To do. You like frailty, Nick? I love frailty. Okay, <laughs> we'll give you like we'll give you something you like. I promise. Thank you. Just hang in for another hour. There'll be ice cream at the end of this recording. I promise. 
<laughs> just wait in the car while I finish shopping and then I'll take it. <laughs> Next like the pod recording where I was left in a hot ass car with the windows rolled up. <laughs> Jake and Eric stood outside and bullshitted about comics. <laughs> but anyway, so Brian Tyler was brought on because he did, they used the score for frailty and they were like, oh, we really like this. They brought him on. He did a score for the full movie and the studio said, eh, too dark. And at the 11th hour, Klaus Bedell was brought in to help punch it up and add some more levity to the score. But Brian Tyler and Klaus Bedell did apparently work in tandem. They did work together to some degree, which again, I thought was interesting because normally it's, you know, one person gets, just gets booted and then someone else is brought in. So, but Brian Tyler was involved to a degree for the whole process. Too dark. Too dark. For a movie about demons and (laughs) ostensibly hell and a mystical superhero with a fancy shotgun. Well, okay. I'm with him then. Can I mention something real quick about the rating? It's PG-13, isn't it? No, it's R. Is it R? It's R. Okay. And I didn't realize why until there is a 15th anniversary video stream that was done in 2020. I don't know who specifically did it. It was part of Comic-Con Online because this would have been in the early days of the pandemic. Steve Weintraub is the host of it who works for Collider. So I don't know if it was officially part of Collider, but it's Francis Lawrence, Akiva Goldsman, and Keanu Reeves. In the process, one of the things Francis Lawrence mentions that I thought was interesting was because if you think about it, it's like, well, totally the movie's pretty dark, but there's not a lot of necessarily graphic stuff in it. And like particularly, it's like there's no real blood until there's the wrist slitting sequence in the finale. And that would do it, though. Well, Francis Lawrence mentions, you know, they gave us a list of criteria for PG-13. He said, and we went down methodically and checked every box to make sure this movie was going to be PG-13. And then we showed it to the MPAA, and within five minutes, they said, "We, you're getting an R rating for, quote, tone. The hell? And their response was, well, what can we do to fix it? And their response was nothing. And Francis Lawrence's response was, motherfucker, if I had known it was just going to be an R rating, we would have shot... <laughs> An R-rated movie. I would have filmed a lot of different shit if I'd known that this was a fucking pointless battle that I was waging. And Akiva Goldsman then speculates. He said, it's not official, but he said, if it's a religious-based horror movie or something that involves demons, it's essentially just R. Well, that that's a shame, because this movie probably would have been better if it was sexed up or, you know, violenced up or something, anything up, just from what we got. Fucking rated it R for him having a whole bunch of unexplained water jugs in his apartment. That was all I had on the rating thing. Sorry, Nick. I just it's all good. the demons thing. So I appreciate it. That was a non sequitur enough for me that Nick's eyes crossed. <laughs> <laughs> this is produced and distributed by Warner Brothers, uh, who brought us Orphan, It, and Shining. The Shining. Good stuff. And that's all I have for production. I, I have actor stuff too, but we can get to that later. I'll just mention one other person from the production side, because I was curious who did the costumes for this. I was like, who did the costume design? And it was Louise Frogley is her name. Again, hopefully I'm pronouncing that properly. But her credits include Bull Durham, Warlock. Yes, the Julian Sands movie. Oh, dear God. (laughs) The Limey, which is one of my absolute favorite Steve Soderbergh movies. She's worked with Soderbergh a lot, but she did the Limey. She did Stigmata, which interestingly enough, Stigmata is another movie that's a music video director doing their first feature that's a horror movie. And involves hand stabbing. Yep, and involves it, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then also, right before this, did Man on Fire. And I fucking love Man on Fire, so I just wanted to mention Man on Fire is a good movie. Whole bunch of shit after that, but those are some of the ones 
she did before this. So, yeah, just really interesting filmography. So, well, let's. All right, Jake, like that? It we done? <laughs> <laughs> no, I got more to say, but I figure we ought to get some of the other stuff out of it. So, Jared, why did you like it? Because it was a fun comic booky story with eight demons and the devil, and I like Keanu Reeves. I like Keanu Reeves too a lot. Well, that's why I liked it. He was in it. It was a nice change of pace for Keanu, honestly. I mean, I don't think he was perfect for the role, but it, it was fun to see him try to be a bit darker. Yeah, I mean, it, I don't know when Point Break came out. I don't know what I saw in between Point Break and this that had him in it. Matrix, probably. Oh, yeah, the Matrix movies. All right, sure. Bram Stoker's Dracula. He was a wrong choice, Bram Stoker's Dracula, too. <laughs> yeah. I I just, I like this in that it's a, you know, one and done story. The acting in it was fine, moved well, pacing was good. Did you tell us you fell asleep watching it? That's because I fall asleep watching movies. I didn't fall asleep in the theater in 2005 <laughs> when I saw this. Oh my uh-huh. God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a good adventure movie. I even talked Rachel into seeing it because I forgot there was a possessed woman on the ceiling in the first 10 minutes and. You know, that sends her out of the room. But other than that, she liked it well enough. I have one interesting comparison that I don't know if it's a criticism or a glorification of the film. I don't know what it adds to it. But the fact it kind of took a James Bond approach was very fascinating to me. Because, like, you know, Beeman shows up and he's like, I have these James Bond gadgets to give you. And he hands them over and then he goes through each one in the movie. (laughs) Just like a James Bond film. And I know how I felt about it. I know it's not <laughs> the best thing to do for this film, but I really enjoy that dynamic. <laughs> At that point in the commentary, again, I mentioned both writers are in there, and it's writers at opposite ends of the draft. And when Beeman shows up, if you're wondering which writer introduced him, it becomes very apparent because Kevin Broadbent, the original writer, pipes up, oh, that's right, you gave him a cue. <laughs> so... But they do mention that originally the the way Beeman was introduced was there's a they shot part of this, but not all of it. But there's a scene of Constantine going to the bowling alley and he picks up a bowling ball because we find out later in the film that Beeman is in the back of the bowling alley behind the lanes and shit. Kind of implies he lives over the bowling alley, too. Well, it's Beeman's the one who who lives behind the rows. Yeah, right, right. right. No, I know that. But (laughs) early in the film, Chaz drops him off at the bowling alley and the next he's in his apartment. Yeah, well, that's where that scene was supposed to go, where he's dropping him off at the bowling alley is where this scene was supposed to be. The way they shot it was Constantine actually goes back and talks to Beeman and then Chaz goes bowling. But the way it was originally written was Constantine picks up a bowling ball that says on it out of provisions and he bowls it and then, you know, hits a strike or whatever. And then he waits and a bowling ball comes back, and the bowling ball has written on it tonight or something. So that's nice. how they communicate is by rolling these bowling balls. That's so. corny as shit, but I love it. <laughs> so CJ, could have been worse. <laughs> uh, fucking leave it in. Who gives a shit? He still shows up and gives him a magic wand. <laughs> it's, it's a wand of fireball. <laughs> all right. So. All right. Two things. That's it? Two? Only two. I'm shocked. For this very, because Nick has mentioned a couple of times that he didn't think Keanu Reeves was the best choice for the character. Obviously, he's not. Matt Ryan, all the way. Matt Ryan, every time. I don't care how young he was. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed Matt Ryan 
physically and and had the, the sort of the patter down a lot better. You don't understand. It's what he does professionally now. I looked him up on IMDb, and it's like the out of the last twelve roles, nine of them are Constantine. It's like it's what he does now. <laughs> He's doing them all the cartoons. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I watched one of those. I watched the uh, the House of Mystery short, which is pretty good. The man rocks. I I love him for the role. I was gonna say that. Yeah. If if folks end up liking this episode, we won't go through an hour of comic talk next time. But yeah, if you like Constantine stuff, there's plenty of other stuff for us to do. There's animated movies and there's the TV show and stuff. So yeah, we can go back to this well. Folks want us to. The House of Mystery one's kind of funny because it's also loosely based on Dangerous Habits, but also yeah. Flashpoint. Yeah, he's in the Apocalypse War one, which yeah. is the their end to the that version of the DCU kind of, which we could do on here. It's close enough. I've only seen the first 30 minutes, but, but based on the shtick of it, it's like, yeah, this is close enough to a horror movie. Yeah, I, I, it's fun. It's whatever. It it yeah. takes a couple of Garth, not the Apocalypse War, the, the, oh, the House, House of Mystery. Mystery. Okay. It takes a couple, like the there's a famous birthday party story with Constantine. And this does kind of riff on that. It's got Jason Blood in it and Spectres in the, the episode. But it it's funny because a lot of this revolves around basically Constantine being an essentially purgatory and getting killed over and over and over again in increasingly horrific and violent ways. But then when he sells his soul to the demons, they won't say the devil. Like, well, we can't say the devil. We can chop this guy's nuts off 16 times on camera, but we're not going to say the devil because that would be too much. And that, that just amused me watching it. But it, it was pretty good. Not great. Like, it's in that, that spot where all the DC animated stuff is like, this is fine. I'm not offended by any of this. Didn't like it. Didn't hate it. It just was. Brian Azarella came up earlier. I could have dovetailed into his ad animated adaptation of The Killing Joke, but I didn't. So I heard that was dog shit, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, not good. I saw that in the theater. Oh, did you? Oh, man. So, all right. So we talked a lot about Constantine, the character. So just talking about this as an, as an adaption, just real briefly. Constantine is a con man. He is a bad person. He gets his friends killed. Do you know why he's damned in the comics? Do you did any... He summons a demon to get another demon taken care of, and he ends up uh, getting a girl dragged right. to hell. Yeah. He, yeah, he kills a girl. And he's literally haunted by the ghosts of people who end up dying as a result of that, which, again, was an element that was in the script at one point. Yeah, none of this, this mortal sin, slice yourself up bullshit, like in the movie. Anyway, He's he's a fast-talking guy. He doesn't really use magic in the comics. He's not an action hero. He doesn't cast spells. He's not, like, he doesn't have the, the fucking stupid-ass tattoo shit at the end. That's not there. And he doesn't have a big shotgun that shoots holy water slugs. He is a guy who uses his wits and his abject lack of morality to get things done. And, you know, he does summoning and, and I guess... To some degree, there's uh, he does uh, uh what do you call it um, when you get rid of a demon? Why am I blanking Ex on the word? Exorcisms. He does exorcisms. He's not a professional exorcist who can see demons, and that's his superpower. He is essentially known as a sorcerer, con man who's an asshole to everybody. Right? Does that sound anything like the character in this? No, it's because close. this character. Yeah. No, this yeah. character is a loner with no. a shotgun. <laughs> just, just no. <laughs> But so I came across a review. I think this was actually cited. It was like in the Wikipedia, you know, reviews section. And I didn't write down who said it. And I apologize. But they wrote it in 2005. So uh, Keanu Reeves has no peer when it comes to playing these sort of messianic roles. So we're already going downhill fast. 
He infuses them with a zen blankness <laughs> and serenity that somehow gets him through even the unlikeliest scenes with a quiet, unassuming dignity. And I'll say this. That's a good description of the character in this film. Pretty terrible fucking description of Constantine as a character, but a good description <laughs> of the character in this film. So when you say he wasn't the right choice, I, I don't care that he's not British. I don't care that this is set in no, L.A. No, no, no. You no, can get away with it. It should be set in London. He should be British. But, you know, we're Americans, and Americans like things that are American. He's also based on fucking Sting. Visually. There's nobody more British than Sting. Visually. <laughs> and anyway, so when you cast Keanu Reeves as him, you're already saying you're making a distinct choice about this character. And that's fine. You can do that. But... Keanu Reeves specifically plays these kind of characters. That blankness is his draw. And this is a character who is anything but blank. He is a fast-talking asshole. Keanu Reeves is not that in any fashion. He's got a very different attitude, true. Right. And and even the way he delivers his lines, he's trying to be... It's it's all very clipped and kind of... It's either zingery or cryptic. And he... Well, he mumbles a lot too, but that just could be because I watch it on HBO Max and HBO Max has the sound down on everything. It is the worst fucking streaming platform for sound. I don't know why. So, like, you just, you're, you're saying up front that this character that we are filming in this film and this actor that we are hiring have nothing to do with this comic character. And then we're going to make them this action sorcerer. And we're going to make him a psychic. And we're going to make him this and that. And it's like, all right, fine. But at some point, you're just, you're not in any fashion doing Constantine other than the name, which, okay, you can do that, but just call it something else. Like this is just when you're not adapting anything, except you're taking Papa Midnight, the name Constantine, the name, no character is further from their comics origin than Chaz. Yeah, Chaz was vastly different. I'll give you that. <sighs> I mean, Chaz is, is like a 50 year old cabbie who hates Constantine, but can't get away from him. You know, and, and even, you know, there was another side character that was in this and only in effect has one line and uh, isn't important at all in the film, which is um, Ellie. And she just at the end, she says, holy water and then melts, which is. She had a bigger role in the film, but it got cut. Slightly. Yeah. It's on the DVD, but it's funny. It's, it's two versions of the same scene. Yeah. It's all, it's the same scene verbatim. One of it's them post-coital in Constantine's bed, and then the other one is in the club as he's going to see Midnight for the first time, and she's in the club. Dialogue exchanges exactly the same, just two different versions of it. So anyway, the point of that whole rant is you're, when you cast Keanu Reeves, who I like, I, I like as an actor, I like his films, I liked the, you know, almost everything I've seen him in. Uh, I've never seen Point Break, don't yell at me, I just haven't, but when you put him in this... I. Jerry shaking his head. <laughs> I, I was willing to give it a chance. It's just, and then they just strip everything else that makes this character, this character away. And then they present you with this film that's cribbed bits from a couple of different story arcs. And it's just pointless to my mind to even call it an adaption because it's not. But just on a basic film, it's, it's just a little too much gobbledygook. It's slow paced, I thought. Uh, a lot of it doesn't click. It doesn't flow real well. It doesn't make too much sense when you go scene to scene. There's a lot of random nonsense floating around. Like I mentioned, the uh, the apartment, which is a lawyer's office that has all these water jugs in it and randomly these metal screens. And, you know, visually all that's fine, but it doesn't it doesn't mean anything. But, the, you know, he's got this cast of side characters, these quirky weirdos that 
all just fucking die immediately. I don't know. And then, you know, the, the female lead, we haven't talked about Rachel Weiss at all. And, you know, she, she does a pretty good job, but she's still a cop that they introduce at confession saying, I just randomly kill people because I know they're guilty. I don't even see their faces, which is not how to get me to root for a cop. <laughs> and then she's just kind of a blank through it, too. Like, and then you just get random. All right. So just one scene. They spend a lot of time talking about how demons can't cross over, but they're trying to cross over. You know, and the ones that are here are called half-breeds, but you don't really say what, what they're half-breeds of. Is it a demon human? No, it doesn't appear to be. Is it an angel human? No, it's fucking Gabriel. Why is Gabriel a half-breed? They're an angel. Gabriel is just a flat-out angel. Right, but they call him, a ha- him her... It's supposed to be a guy, androgynous. They don't Tilda do Swinton anything. says in the interview, she says him. Uh, him. Gabriel, so. yeah. I believe Tilda Swinton's allowed to show up, but she can't do anything. Only the, the half-breed demons and angels can actually influence humanity. You know, she's just there to talk. <laughs> she can't actually affect right. Well, well, that's what they say the half-breeds do. They say all the people are half-breed. They say the Gavin Rosdale is a half-breed. Right, so he's allowed to actually do things to some degree. Right, but what makes him a half-breed? Is he half-human? They never actually say. They just call them half-breeds. But then they also say demons can't manifest. But- well, wait a minute. Did you think they were half-demon and half-dog? They're obviously half-demon and half-human. But they don't say that. They don't explain what a half-breed is. They just say, I call them half-breeds. Well, because they look human, I think you can make yeah. an inference. You can, but then they show that they're not. They say, oh, these are just my fake skin. It's, it's, wait, he's not fucking half-goldfish and half-demon. <laughs> it's obvious he's a half-human, half-demon. Thank you, Jer. <laughs> but they also reference to Gabriel as a half-breed. And they say anybody in the physical plane is a half breed. Is the angel Gabriel half human, half angel? Maybe under Gabriel's shirt, she had 32 eyes. You don't know. I have to admit, I don't recall Gabriel being called half. She is on the physical plane. They say anything in the physical plane is a half breed. He says that at least three times. She clearly breaks that to some degree. And I don't know why or how I'll give you that. Well, she's in the physical plane. She's there. I know, but she's also clearly a, like a, a flat-out angel. Right. So, what's a half-breed? Something that's not a You see what angel. my point no, is. I understand what you're saying. I'm saying that breaks the logic. Right. But it, you can't say that... They refer to her as a half-breed. Gabriel is a half-breed. She's just not. Him. Excuse me. I'm getting my pronouns mixed. Anyway, the point is, is there's not a lot of structural logic to anything that gets said in this film. And that's a big part of my problem with it. If they're going to make rules... The rules have to be, you know, applied. Otherwise, you're you're just saying shit. Like when the demons show up in the street, demons can't appear. They can't cross over. But here's a swarm of demons and they make you sick the first time you see them. So I've seen demons a lot. Are they there? Are they not there? They're hunting her down, but they can't be in the physical plane. Which is it? I'm talking about the swarm of demons outside of the, the blood of the Christ storefront. I know you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I know yeah. what you're and talking he, about. And he says... The first time you see demons, it's the brimstone. It makes you throw up. But they've also distinctly said by at least three times at this point that demons cannot manifest. Uh, it, just to play devil's advocate here, he has actually gone to hell. So he's, he's encountered them in other planes, too. For, for sure. He has encountered them. But he says, you know, he implies that they're there and the brimstone smell is what makes you throw up in the first time you encounter them. But, but they're there. That's the problem. No, they're clearly there. They're breaking with... The sun looking to transgress into the world, they're breaking the rules. They're breaking the boundaries. They're trying to do this shit, you know, without getting caught. And Constantine is the thorn in their side with that. It, it, it just, it's, 
it's problematic to me in, in, in the logic of this film. The way I look at it is that's the way it's supposed to be, but the door's sort of creeping open. Yes. That's what the whole point of the movie is. The door is opening more and more and more. Yeah, the Antichrist is pushing these things out the door. Yeah, that was the rules beforehand. Now the devil's son is doing what he's doing, and the door is opening. So the rules are a lot looser now. They're breaking the neutrality. Right. Eh. The way it's talked about in the film is that this has been an ongoing thing. And the whole point is that the demon... Yeah, that was the way it was before. Yes. And then that Mexican dude fights the spirit destiny, and everything is now going to hell. Literally. Well, but the point of the spirit destiny is the only way they can manifest is with the help of God. And that's what the spirit destiny is all about. No. The point of spirit destiny is it's the only way the Antichrist can tear his way out into the world is with the help of the angelic blood that's on it. But everybody else, all the other demons are mainly adhering to the rules of the contract as enforced by God and Satan. Like, both sides are trying to maintain the balance to try to win their bet. They're trying to not break the fucking bet. And so what happens is, is that when everybody follows the rules because they don't want to deal with their bosses. Nobody wants to have to answer to Satan. Nobody wants to have to answer to God. But with the Antichrist making its push to be the next ruler... Anyone back in him's like, well, I don't have to worry about breaking the rules because this guy's going to be in charge when it's all said and done. People are backing the wrong horse, breaking the rules, crossing the boundaries. That's what's happened. That's too much backstory you have to come up with on your own. With, with the aid of Gabriel and Balthazar and these other half-breeds. Oh, Gabriel is a half-breed now. I, I don't recall her being referred to that, but I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I don't recall that happening. Eric is now rubbing his <laughs> temple. Just trying to see if... See if my flesh folds will actually come through on the microphone of me rubbing. <laughs> I'm still back on railing against IMDb user Keen on Keanu five eight seven for some random fucking review. That no, that wasn't. That was an actual critic review. <laughs> and another thing, motherfucker. No, that was a critic review that that was praising him, and I agree with it in I terms know, of I his know, performance. I, I just don't think it had anything to do with Constantine the character. <sighs> Real quick, speaking of the Spirit Destiny, they used the same prop that was used in Hellboy back in 2004. Nice. <laughs> it was the exact same prop. It was a nice touch. So maybe the blood on it was Hellboy's. Ah. They, they mentioned in one of the commentaries in one of the drafts, instead of the Spirit Destiny, it was supposed to be um, one of the nails that Christ was crucified with yep. um, because they wanted something that would be that they you could eat more easily conceal or something, I think. Is, so And it ended up just becoming the Spirit Destiny. Speaking, one more thing about the Spirit of Destiny I like is they find it wrapped up in a Nazi flag because it was lost during World War II. Apparently, production uh, burned that and they flag burned that shit yeah. afterward to make sure it didn't fall into the wrong hands. I was like, nice, well done. It, originally, it was supposed to be Istanbul. Uh, it was it was a hospital in Istanbul, and there's a prisoner digging his way through, and and he finds a hidden alcove, and that's where he finds the spear. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, we can't afford Istanbul, so they're like, okay, Mexico. I'm I'm trying to decide. I like that the devil's son was was uh, Manon or Maman because we already have a T-shirt for that. Uh, well, close enough. Manon, close. Yeah, it's that's everything else in this movie is just sort of eh, close enough. So why not our (sighs) T-shirt? Trying to debate going down this road. Do it. (sighs) No. Well, because your your whole tangent basically just now was. This movie dumbs shit down too much. Why didn't they dumb this bit down too much? <laughs> this bit isn't dumb enough. Why is all this other shit dumb? <laughs> but and, and I don't want to pull that fucking thread. But one thing I will agree on in terms of that was it, 
to your point about certain things being, I mean, we, the, the movie, it's, it's, it's very Hollywoodized, obviously, you know, version yes. of the character. But one of the things that struck me was you mentioned the, the thing you were most excited about seeing in it was the vertigo text at yeah. the beginning, because you get this, you know, the post-apocalyptic like thing with the orange background. This is the orangest movie we've done. It's very orange. Oh, There's God, so much yes. orange. All of hell is orange. All of it. But before we get to Mexico, though, there's text, and it's a quote about whoever holds the Spear of Destiny will be able to, you know, control the Earth, and then it's like, the Spear of Destiny has been missing since the end of World War II. It's like, was that fucking necessary? Not at all. <laughs> because they lay out everything with the Spear of Destiny later. He has an entire speech laying out everything about it. So, like, all you're really supposed to know about in the opening is they find a MacGuffin. It doesn't matter that you have, like, those two sentences about the Spear of Destiny don't add sufficient context. They should have just called it Chekhov's gun. Like, literally just said that. He finds Chekhov's gun right up here. (laughs) So I can't fault you, you know, for saying, like, some of this stuff is too rudimentary or too hand-wavy. Because, yeah, there's, there's definitely elements where I'm like, man, even by Hollywood standards, that's too dumb and that's one of the- I, I like the spirit destiny intro just because spirit destiny is really intrinsically linked to justice society and the all-star squadron so whenever it comes up i get a little excited it was all downhill from there but i got a little excited when that happened <laughs> <laughs> maybe i'll see adam smasher maybe maybe, maybe. coming up gonna see adam smasher dr fate uh i know how much you love that helmet I, look i'm excited to see dr fate i just don't know why they made his helmet out of fucking legos or whatever they did it's weird looking and i don't get it but anyway <laughs> i'm still excited for dr fate i don't know why i keep letting dc movies do this to me <laughs> i'm so excited for black adam and the power of shazam sequel and it's like I, power of shazam the first one was good yeah. so the second one i i feel justified in looking forward to but black adam i shouldn't but i am but i shouldn't but i am anyway maybe that'll have constantine in it too well, and it, if it turns out to be shit, maybe this do, us doing this was well-timed. It'll <laughs> rub some of the DC cinematic, just to remind you how bad it can get. The comics have been good. Oh, the Black Adam Times? Yeah. Written by uh, Kevin Scott. Yeah, those are enjoyable. I, I do want to say that I appreciate your love of the comic and that you really wanted the, like, three... If you were going to have them, the three triumvirate for Hell's Leaders, that, that would be cool in and of itself. That being said... Peter Stormare can do anything, and I will watch it. All right. <laughs> the man is a national treasure, and I absolutely love it. And it, apparently he was uh, responsible for the outfit he had in this. He chose it. He chose the off-white linen suit with the tar coming from the feet. I love all of it. I do. I do. I can't. I, can't, I love the man. Was that supposed to be? T- I assume that was demon blood, which is supposed to be black and thick. Tar. Tar, because the original depiction of hell in the script was it was a black void, and, but but when you walked on it, it was basically tar. Uh-huh. So that might have been a holdover. That was one that. of the fucking things I liked, and now I can't even like it anymore because one of the important things about all right, look. one of the important things in in the comic is that Constantine has demon blood, which is black and thick. So I assume that was what was leaking off his feet. But anyway, it might be. But and I like Peter Stromer in this. I haven't said my fucking opinion of this movie yet. I haven't said shit about what I actually thought of it yet. I would love to hear what you feel, Eric. You should tell us. Well, no, because, all right, so I'm going to say real quick what my basic thoughts are on the movie. Because, again, I remember it was like, I remember kind of enjoying it, but I was curious to see what I would think of it going back to it. And going back to it, I think it holds up shockingly well. 
I do not think it is very good, but I do think it's pretty okay and rather surprising for studio movies around this time. I'll get more into that in a second. I think but the movie is kind of circling back to what you were talking about before is I think it's a movie that's very much hobbled by two things. And unfortunately, those two things are the two leads. Yeah. Keanu is I, I like Keanu fine, but I do think he's miscast. And I don't like from a comic perspective, obviously, like you mentioned, his depiction of the character is decidedly different from the Constantine in the comics. But I also think for this script, like the, the main element that the cancer element gives the character, even if it doesn't specifically like directly influence the finale as much, but it's supposed to add another degree of like world weariness and bitterness that's supposed to infuse this performance. And it just doesn't quite come through. But Keanu, God bless him, is trying. He's very much trying. He's only really got two scenes in it where you, like the idea of him being cynical or bitter kind of comes through. Those scenes are okay, but there's really, most of them he's just kind of blank loner. But anyway. And, and Rachel Weiss who I really like as an actress in general. Yes. I think is a bit off here, but also I don't think she has particularly good chemistry with Keanu. So that's the main thing that hobbles the movie for me. And it's a big thing because it's literally the center of the film. But the reason I'm bringing this up now, because I wanted to at least mention my broad opinions of it, because look, I do not give a fuck how unvertigo it is the Peter Stormare scene fucking rules. Yes! That scene yes! fucking rules. Absolutely, I love everything about it. Everything about that scene fucking rules. Fuck yes. It is a very unvertigo Lucifer. Yes. It is Peter yes. Stormare being a wacky ass bastard. Like him and his possessed. best. <laughs> I am sorry. It is great. I, li- I was waiting the whole movie to see it again. Everything about that sequence clicks. The dialogue, his weird-ass performance, it's one of those things is like, I don't know why this works as well as it does, but everything about it, down to just the rhythm of it, yep. the way he interacts with Keanu, just his line deliveries when he gets back. Uh, I, the main thing I remembered from this movie after originally seeing it was that scene. That yep. scene stuck with me. And I was like, did I just like that because I like Peter Stormare? And maybe kind of, but that scene also fucking rules. That scene <laughs> fucking rules. 100% agree. All right, all right. So a couple things about that scene. For one, I agree. <laughs> Wholeheartedly. I think Peter Stormare is fantastic in this. There, there are things I liked about this film. There's just small, like I, Peter Stormare. I love Tilda Swinton as Gabriel. I thought she was fantastic. Tilda Swinton's fantastic. Jamon Hansu is Jamon Hansu. So of course I liked him. He, yeah, he can do no wrong. You know, I like that he played Dave Brubeck. That was fun. The reason I called out those two leads, Keanu and Rachel Weiss, is because I do think otherwise the film, I, I think, is really well cast. Yeah, I would agree. Well, not uh, Chaz. Like, but... even Shia LaBeouf, for, what, uh, for their approach to Chaz, for wanting him to be, you know, because in the various drafts of this, like I mentioned, it got, as the one screenwriter puts it, Indiana Jones. So they basically short-rounded chance yeah and wanted to give him you know the wacky younger side he's fine at that within that he's fine and i'm not a big shia labeouf fan but within that for what they slotted that character into being i think he's fine agree and then everyone else i think is varying degrees of really good jimon huntsu jimon huntsu is great tilda swinton's fantastic tilda swinton's haircut when she first shows up as gabriel it should, should always be that her haircut. I don't know why she changes it in the final scene. That swooping <laughs> down the one side looks fucking fantastic. 
uh, Gavin Rossdale as Balthazar is really good. Out of well, uh, uh, I, I did not like his finger looking good delivery. That was awkward as fuck. <laughs> it's a cringy line, but I thought he was fine with it. Look, Kevin Rossdale is a handsome fucking man. I was happy with everything he did in this. I freely admit that shit. I liked Bush too. His makeup is really good too. In the the sequence where half his face gets dissolved uh, because he's a half breed, do I want to open that discussion? No, it's not why. Because he's don't, a make, don't make me Hulk out again. We're in the say nice things portion. A fair amount of that was actual uh, physical uh, effects. They had like two different appliances for his face to show the damage. Little known fact: Jake's been wearing purple shorts this whole recording. <laughs> was he, has he ever been in anything else, Nick? In the your actor list? Yeah, uh, Gavin Rousdale's been in uh, Habit, The Bling Ring, and The Game of Their Lives. So no. Yeah, not much, but but he has I worked guess the bling ring was semi-consistently. Fairly well-received. Like it looked like he basically like takes one acting role every like two to three years or something. Yeah. Because one of them was like last year or something. Uh, I want to rewind for just two seconds and remind people that Peter Stormare was in Clown. That's important to note. I'm just going to say that. We can move on. <laughs> His scene in Clown is also basically fucking perfect, which is That's brilliant. Spoiler for Clown. Where's the suit? Uh, I'm wearing it. Long pause. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that scene is fucking. But also, Jake, your favorite actor's in it. Bruett Taylor Vince. I love Bruett Taylor Vince. As Hennessy. From identity. From identity! <laughs> We were just talking to Daniel Krause about that. <laughs> look, but before we get circled back to the other look, the reason I'm so enthusiastic about the Peter Stormare stuff is because historically, I, I get exasperated at kind of the you know the, the the really over the top devil portrayals, and the ones I tend to find more interesting historically is look, I. When I was in college, it was a weird tangent, but like my my English course that I took freshman year was that they had grad students teaching it, and the grad student would basically pick a theme. And the class I was in was the teacher had set us down to read Paradise Lost by John Milton, and then his the whole crux of the class was how Paradise Lost changed the depiction of evil yep. in everything that followed. Yep. And so I have always thought stuff that aired closer to that John Milton-y intricate and more nuanced and stuff that remembered that he's supposed to be an angel stuff like the vertigo Lucifer, you know, that that stuff was always far more interesting. And so I, I normally like it when stuff leans into that. Peter Stormare is not that, but <laughs> no, he's not, but it works. It works. And his performance is all over the place, but the beats where he dials it down intermittently it, it literally he's just an emotional ping pong yep. from just doing over the top stuff and all of a sudden being by peter stormare standards really reserved and it's one of those shocking things where it's like all of a sudden it's like it's an approach to the character i don't normally jive with but it just works maybe it's because he's so peter stormare about it but it's the the way he hits all of those lines you're busy 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 like i still every time i see the movie i laugh and he says yeah what do you want when he gets back after <laughs> finally dispatching Carol, he's like, yeah, what do you want? <laughs> he's just so resigned to it. He's like, ah, crap. <laughs> like the bit where he lunges at Constantine, where he's like, you know, one of the rare bits where they mention he's supposed to be a con man, where he says, you know, is this another one of your cons? 
He's going to go in there. You waited 20 years for me. What's another 20 seconds? He does the bit where he lunges and sticks his tongue out. That should be fucking terrible. It should be god awful. It works. It works so fucking it's well. So perfect. Look, I'm not going to argue. Like I said, I liked him. And, and I'll say this. You mentioned the Vertigo Lucifer. The Vertigo Lucifer came after this. So the devil that shows up in Dangerous Habits is much closer to Peter Stromer than the later Sandman and evolved version of lucifer the the were all the facets because there were the three facets of them were they all i haven't read it since 2005 so they're different it's it's not three facets it's three different demons yeah they're completely separate of each other but he shows up in the i think the second issue of that arc when constantine goes to visit his friend in ireland who is also dying and that's when constantine tricks the devil into drinking holy water and saving his friend's soul but that devil is much closer to Peter Stroman. Not the, you know, the hinky delivery, but overall, much closer to that than what the Vertigo Lucifer you're referring to, the, the evolution of that. Mm. Which is funny, because the Lucifer on the fucking TV show Lucifer that's supposed to be based on the Vertigo one is much closer to actual Constantine than the Lucifer in the comics for <laughs> Peter Stroman and <laughs> the way he's played. So, and, and the angel in, what do you call it? Supernatural. Uh, Castiel is visually is 100% based on Constantine. Oh, 100%. So you got 100%. angels and fucking devils that are better at Constantine than Keanu Reeves. Anyway. They do show in the special features of the Blu-ray that they said, look, we tried the olive coat originally, like the coat he wears in the comics. They were like, it just, the black one looked better on it, because it's Keanu. It's just when you put the black one on him, it's like, yeah, that one just. Well, he's not even wearing a trench coat. He's wearing a car coat. Well, he did wear a trench coat in those other movies, and they may not have wanted him to look yeah. like that. Look, I'm not complaining I mean, about yeah. it visually. I just, he was wearing a car no, coat, no, I that's all. <laughs> and they, they get the look right with Matt Smith. He looks just like the, in the comics. But also, the, the look has evolved a little bit. And, and honestly, the Constantine presented in this is much closer to the Constantine you get in DC superhero comics for the next 10 years. So, you know, if you like the, the Heroes Were Born, you know, and all of those... Constantine comics where the Justice League Dark where he's functionally a superhero you're gonna like this movie more than if you you know the, the previous 200 fucking issues of Hellblazer where he's not another thing I liked about the movie is their nearly faithful recreation of the blood rave scene from Blade except with a holy shotgun <laughs> <laughs> so while I don't like the character like okay that's a nice homage but you should have used the actual music and that's the last positive thing I think I have to say about this film hey I'm, you got two Sweet. I, I like Tilda Swinton. Three. What what the did anybody else catch the, the end credit scene? Oh the, the quote at the end? Yeah. The what? The Chaz turning into an angel bit? Oh. Yeah, I was talking about something. Yeah, I caught that. What the hell was that shit? Who the fuck knows? <laughs> I thought angels were not human. Like, so why is Chaz turning into an angel? Oh sure, you can ask why and not get yelled at by my brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember that scene, and I didn't see it on this rewatch. But it's it's post credits. He dies in the movie, so why wouldn't he become an angel? I just the impression I got was that human souls weren't angels. Like angels and human souls were different things. <sighs> like demons no, are there to punish human they're, souls. They're supposed to be. I read that as just yeah. I just read that as he was going to heaven, basically. Because yeah, because originally it wasn't supposed to be a post credit thing. It was originally the ending. And like as he walks away from it was when Constantine had his dialogue, like his noirish monologue that randomly bookends the end of the film um, was supposed to be there. So I, I just read it as that. It was like, okay, yeah, we killed 
because that's one thing I again that's there's so many things in the movie that are are Hollywoodized, like we talked about. He has you know it's it's one of the things that struck me on the film is for when it was made, it has so many of the what you would be afraid of a Hollywood adaptation of Constantine being as far as the elements of the character to get stripped out, as far as the tone getting stripped down, like the, the edgier elements are stripped away. Yes. It, you know, it's not as graphic. It's not quite as, you know, horrific. It's it, it, give him a cute character. He has a little tube that has dragon's breath in it. He gets a magic shotgun and all this. It, like, it's like, oh shit. There's all these beats that are straight up like, ah, fuck. It's what you would most fear. How, as Jake not so hard, the brim of his hat is going to be hit his <laughs> pop filter. Dong, dong. But within that, one of the things that struck me on it is this is a shockingly somber movie for a major Hollywood film at the time it came out. And yeah, it has overblown scenes where he like, you know, lights a thing in a street and, you know, all these demons that should or should not be there. That's part of the Shroud of Moses. It's sh yeah, it's supposed to be a Shroud of Moses, which uh, they don't actually state. But yeah, it was in one of the, the I think mentioned explicitly in one of the drafts. But but even then, it's shockingly lower on bombast than you would expect. Yeah. And and the reason I call all this out is because they cast a blank slate in the lead. Well, we're getting there. Is you know, Francis Lawrence is. Like we mentioned, he is a music video director, and this was his first narrative feature. And it doesn't always happen, but what you get a lot with music video directors when they're making their first feature is they're very much focused on the gloss and on the visuals. Yep. And the actual telling of story elements are often very secondary. They might pick it up over time, but normally that first film, the instincts often come through like they're making an, an extended music video. This doesn't feel that way. And... It has gloss, like the approach to the visuals. Like it's if you say that this is a music video director, it's like, oh yeah, I can totally see that in the camera work and whatever, and, and you know the way a lot of it's laid out. But Lawrence, to his credit, the movie is shockingly geared towards a trying to have a somber atmosphere, shockingly going for an a creepy atmosphere at points. Again, more so than you would think in a major Hollywood picture. And it's shockingly trying to be more sensitive to character beats and character moments and letting scenes breathe. Like, uh, for instance, this is a random one, but the, the scene with Ra where he drowns Rachel Weisz, you know, where he puts her under. The build up to that, when he submerges her, and there's no you know, overscored. They let the scene play out basically in real time. And it's stuff that it's not as frantic and it's not as feverish as a lot of other stuff. So in some ways it's very Hollywood in some ways it's not. The issue again is for me again, is at the center of it, the character actors you're hinging it on a, the script underserves them in several respects, but also then the actors, I just think are miscast. But I, I do think Francis Lawrence has a shockingly good approach and he was a fan of the comic to some degree going in. So I, I think it's as someone's debut feature, it holds up surprisingly well. I mentioned that because I haven't liked anything he's done since. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying that as a dig, but I, I didn't really care for I Am Legend. And, and it's I, I, we'll get because we're going to do it at some point on the pod. The ending is not my issue with it, but the ending certainly doesn't help. But there's. There's the alternate ending of it that's on the DVD, which would have made it better. But the, the film's issues go beyond that. So I'm not not big on I'm Legend. I never saw Water for Elephants. He did Catching Fire. 
and both Mockingjay films, which I was eh, on all of those. And then he did Red Sparrow, which I did see, and I did not care for Red Sparrow. So is that the Russian spy one? Yeah, with Jennifer Lawrence. Yep, I saw that. I was hey, I didn't I didn't think it was god awful, but I wasn't a fan. I, was like, eh, I liked it well enough. I thought the the Mockingjay movies were okay, but I didn't see them all. Not particularly much of anything. They were slightly more faithful adaptions than this for sure and and when you think of them at least when i do for most of them like when i think of i am legend and when i think of those catching fire and mockingjay what the, the things about it that stuck with me are the visual elements again he's a very visually driven director which again it's i think it is interesting looking back at this that there was a deliberate attempt to have a character-centric film again what they're trying to accomplish i think that essentially they this is a far more I don't want to say nuance because again, it's the plot is not particularly intricate and it's not like this overly emotionally drawn film. But in terms of its overall approach, it is surprisingly effective than you would expect a major motion picture that's, you know, basically you're ripping up a comic character and cobbling them together for parts. The movie holds up better than I was expecting. Agreed. Disagree. <laughs> but i respect your opinion i agree i liked it then i liked it now so yeah i agree with you i yeah i mean i've certainly said my piece but yeah now i will say there's people we follow on twitter who i saw in the lead up to this before i actually rewatched it but even before we decided to do it i've seen people since we started the pod tweet occasionally that they're like this movie's a, a forgotten masterpiece or, you know, they're like, too. Oh man, I went back and revisited Constantine and, and man, it's way better than I expected. And, and so it seems like there's a big kind of resurgence of affection for the film. I mean, enough that they did a Comic-Con panel that albeit online, that was for the 15th anniversary. So being- if you Google it, there's a fair amount of pieces out there sort of rediscovering it and praising it and talking about it. I read quite a few of them in prep for this and, disagree (laughs) (laughs) don't get me wrong it is not what constantine should be in his own film i will give you that it could be so much better it could be so much bigger and the fact that you can see how much bigger it could be and that kills you i get it that being said for a warner brothers film i'm kind of impressed (laughs) yeah i'm just not willing to give it bonus points for being better than what you would expect because i don't think it's good I, I just think it's, it's you know, yeah, for a big budget horror movie, they, they made some unconventional choices that you didn't see at the time when everything was, uh, what was that fucking wrestler movie we watched with the... Fallen Angels. Fallen Angels, which watch Eric's here now. No, 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 the other one, the other one, the 2000s one, the one that had every uh, 2000s... See No Evil? Trope, See No see Evil. No, okay, That's, it was either that or Doom, so <laughs> there were two 2000s ones we did. But you know how, like, See No Evil was every single bad horror choice that every 2000s horror movie made with the you know visuals and whatever. This doesn't make those same choices. It's better than that. It's it is a a step up from that. And you know, for a big budget horror movie, you're right. It does a lot of things differently, more interestingly than you were getting at the time. I just don't think any of it works. To me, it feels like a fairly dull plotting film where the plot you have to fill in too many blanks to make it make any kind of consistent sense. That has some very good performances in it, but as you said, not from the leads. So, like, if you if you called this Bob Johnson and not Constantine, I still wouldn't like it. <laughs> and it to me, it's it's dumb like Legion, 
but it doesn't have you know the the gravitas no the the awareness of that yeah. It's it's and I, look, I we we've talked about Legion. Legion is not my no, favorite. Wait, 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 wait. Look, I thought the only line in the sand I was going to draw in this movie was Peter Stormer. No, no, no. Two two lines being drawn. <laughs> I, I gotta need more fucking sand because I'm drawing a whole other line here. It is not. <laughs> it this movie is dumb. I will. Not, I went on a whole diatribe about proof. Legion, Legion, dumb. Come on. No, I I think it's dumb like Legion. Oh, no, oh. no, no. You are. Oh. Oh, this is great. Eric doesn't want to flat out say I'm wrong, but he thinks I'm stupid. You are wrong. There you go. Now <laughs> <laughs> we're there. Because doubling back to the bit before it started, there's another thing. But it's... I wasn't going to draw a line. Oh, we're going to get an editor's note with me saying Give me a something. I'm before... drawing all the lines. Ah! Because here's the other bit about that I'll give it after talking about all the, the ways in which it's different. Like one of the things we talked about, which is. Klaus Bedelt, who was brought in to punch up the score and make it more bouncy. Even with that, like I said, the movie is shockingly somber. So even with it being punched up and doing stuff to give it more levity, it's still surprising. But here's the thing I want to mention in terms of it being ahead of its time. The shit that's very much of its time is still good, I think, and is still effective. Like, the dumb Hollywood shit in it? It's dumb. But it works. But I think it's generally entertaining. Yeah. I do not like the hell approach in this movie at all. The post-apocalyptic shit. I think the general concept of having hell be a mere image of reality is somewhat interesting just because of the constant mirror imagery that they use for the demons. The, you know, the, the first demon is captured in a mirror. Balthazar yeah. is looking in a mirror. When Mammon is finally dispatched, it's reflected in the tile. You know, things That's like nice so, some real, like, real quick yeah. pause about the mirror. And I fully admit this might be just something. Else. Why couldn't they just turn it sideways to get it out of the window? Did they say Hollywood? Did they say <laughs> something? Because then he could slide out. Yeah, it, it needed to be facing her. So it was still in view. If they, they could have lost it by turning it sideways. They needed to go with the mirror. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought. But they, they never kind of said that. And I keep watching like, did they? Why do you have to have everything explained? I understood <laughs> that the first time I saw it. And that's 10 minutes. Because I don't like movie. having to fill in the blanks. It's not, you're not filling anything. If a movie is, if a movie is giving something where I have to stop and think, why are they doing it this way? Then they have failed because I shouldn't have to think that. That's why I don't like it. If I have to stop and say, why is this like this when I'm watching a movie? I am now out of that film. And why did you have to stop and say that? Because it's, it's, because all they have to do, you're watching it, just turn it slightly to the side and you're fine. Instead, he's doing this whole pulley They're thing. They're doing a complex ritual here. They have to balance it proper and everything. Yeah. So there's a way they have to do it. That's understood as they're doing it. I didn't have to stop and think. Well, maybe that's our problems. I think more when I'm watching movies than I'm supposed to. All right. <laughs> but the, the movie gives you visual context clues for it. Like, I don't think this is fucking difficult. Well, no. He's physically obscuring the mirror. He moves. There's a reaction shot of, of her going, uh. Which is this, okay, so there's a demon vanity thing. Which the movie then compounds later by having Balthazar admire himself in a mirror. Okay, but he so, he's pounding, the thing is kind of pounding its way out right there. So it's trying to break through. Right. Yes. And then it goes out and it immediately flips around. And then falls down and crashes. That, that was what confused me, is that when it goes outside, it doesn't like jump out. It just, the mirror immediately flips and nothing super specific happens and then it goes down and breaks. So it makes me wonder why couldn't they just turn it a little to get it out? That it, it was a thought I had while I was watching it, 
And I thought I missed something where they said why, or they, they implied why. That's all. They have it, the mirror over top. They get it to leap out and trap itself in the reflection. It's sitting on top of that reflection now, trying to get out. Right. So what they have to do is they have to not knock it off the reflection until they get it far enough away from the girl that's no longer connected to her. And then by shattering the, the mirror on this end, it cancels its ability to get through. Yeah. I, still too much filling in the blanks for me for a scene that, that's a little visually weird. Except the three of us got it. Yeah. That's, that's fine. <laughs> that That's absolutely fine. I'm saying, fine. For me, when I'm looking at this, the structure of that scene where he has to leap off and jam it through the window is weird. It's something that where you're thinking, why are you doing it this way? And you haven't told me anything about why you're doing it this way. So when you're doing something that's just distinctly strange, you have to say, okay, so it's probably this. But I don't want to think that. I just want to know. And for me, and the way I approach movies or the way I was watching this movie and have always watched this movie, that took me out of it. And that's something I don't like. You took yourself out of it. It didn't take you out of it. We're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Anyway, moving on. Yes, by trying to engage with the film and think about what I'm watching, I took myself out of it. No, you you took yourself out of it going into this when they cast Keanu Reeves as Constantine. No, I didn't. That's what people have been saying for years, and it's not. Yeah, you did. It's That's my problem with it. I just don't like the film on its merits. Yes, I also don't like it based on the casting and stuff. But watching it and thinking about it, I, I can get into adaptions that aren't exactly like the film because... Like we've talked about the Watchmen adaption, which is exactly like the comic and is terrible for it. I don't need this stuff to be exact. I need it to at least get the core of the thing right, usually to enjoy it. But in this, removing that and watching it like I did this time, trying to divorce myself as much from that particular aspect of it as possible, I still don't like the film. I think there's a lot here that doesn't track. That you have to fill in the blanks. It doesn't flow well. The leads are not good, like Eric has said. I can dislike a film, an adaption, without it being entirely related to it being a bad adaption. That's what's the case is in this. And it for years I get irritated about it because it everything I every criticism I make of it gets immediately dismissed for that reason. Which is fine, but it's not true. And you can talk about, yeah, I took myself out for the mirror thing by thinking too much about it. Fine. But I don't like the movie on its own merits. No, no. My point is no matter how many times you watch this and how much you say you can watch it even handed. You went in predisposed. You're never un not going to be predisposed, ever. And that's what I'm it's saying. It's not possible, though. Every criticism is immediately dismissed like that. So there's nothing I... Yeah, anyway, moving on. This is going to be the first recording we've ever done where I hit stop recording, and Jake's just going to break out into stars. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just... Out in the darkness, some wrong motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just funny. It's because... What what Jerry is saying right now is the same thing that everybody who has said to me about this film is you don't like it because of this. No, no. And I'll say I don't like it because of this, and it's immediately dismissed, which is fine. You can think of however I approach it. I'm not it. saying you don't like it because of this. You cannot like you the movie. You just did. No. I said you couldn't go into the movie and like it. I went into it excited about it because I love Constantine. When I first saw it, I was looking forward to it. I was excited about the film. I wasn't immediately dismissing it because it was Reeves and because it was in America. I'm not saying you were immediately dismissing it. I'm just you just said it! You just said I immediately dismissed it! And so it must be, for so it is I'm written. I'm just saying, on the there, there is no way this movie could have been good in your mind. It, it, there's no way it could have been a good movie. And I'm saying it could have been, if it was a good movie. No. 
I, I don't believe it could be in your world. That's fine. R- real quick, I'm just going to throw this out there. During that exorcism scene, they wanted to have that kind of close-up shot of like the cigarette on the dresser while seeing what was going on. And they couldn't get the lenses right, so they ended up making a cigar-sized cigarette. <laughs> they sat on the some top secret shit so so they could get the right angle and size and everything done they, they didn't know what was it what, hold on the split diopters in 2005 yes yeah, see i remember movie stuff yeah well there's oh. sorry <laughs> i've got the little angel devil asking whether or not i want to go down this road no I've, I've blown my load at this point i'm good i, I understand that anything i say is going to get completely immediately dismissed because i'm predisposed against it so i'm good well there there's a lot of dumb shit in here and some of it i think is done it's it's dumb but it's well dumb some of it i think is just dumb i said there's aspects of the mirror bit like the yeah i'm not gonna get into it but the cigarette bit is something I thought was a really well done non-verbal visual touch. Lights a cigarette, puts it down in the foreground, establishing shot of it. All right, he thinks this is going to be an in-and-out job. Yep, long enough to just put the cigarette down and go out and do his business. It nice was longer. End of it. You see how far the cigarette is burned down. Repeated the same shot again. Just a non-verbal thing. It was like, hey, that's well done. A, a more interesting visual touch. I also like when he picks it up and he looks at it and he's just pissed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. That was I appreciated that part of his performance. Not much else, but I appreciated that part. You brought up Watchmen though, which was something else I wanted to touch on just very briefly, which Did is, I I turned red in in a haze there for about 20 minutes. <laughs> just woke up. <laughs> <laughs> because technically this is to a degree an Alan Moore adaptation. It's an adaptation of an Alan Moore character. Not according to Alan specific. Moore. Yeah, this is the one where he did not receive credit. Because so in 2001, there was the adaptation of From Hell by the Hughes brothers, which I'd really like to do at some point. There's 2003. There's the adaptation of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which I'm going to guess that none of us want to do. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I don't want to do that for so many reasons. <laughs> the movie that almost ruined James Robinson's Starman for you. <laughs> And then in 2005, we get this. And this is one one of the ones where Alan Moore wasn't credited. Instead said, you know, whatever portion of rights he gets, you know, should go to the other creator. So I thought it was interesting where it falls in terms of, you know, Alan Moore and his storied history with Hollywood, where these days basically they ask, you know, can we credit you for this? And he throws his grimoire down on the table and says, you can credit me if I'll let you choose which one of these spells I cast on your liver. <laughs> in retaliation for this <laughs> uncredited it is alan very popular choice <laughs> what he wasn't credited on watchman either right wasn't credited on i don't think he was credited like, on watchman yeah. so i think it was i think league was the last one just funny because league might be the furthest from his work that any of these movies was it's a hell of a jump Ugh, i don't man. remember the from hell enough to say but i mean there's no there was just that movie was kind of doomed from the start too in terms of trying to make a faithful adaption but i don't i don't remember disliking it i i remember like but it's another one that had kind of the same issue as this which is i mean well from hell is you know far more intricate yeah in terms of its source material and it's and it's like all right you're putting this through the hollywood machine and uh, <laughs> But again, for for what it is, I remembered it being pretty interesting. Again, the Hughes Brothers, I remember, that's another film that's very visually strong. Uh, 
God, I can't remember. I might be biased on that one because Ian Holm is the villain, and I really like Ian Holm. But I do remember liking it, but it's one of those, it's not particularly comparable to the source material. They end up being very different things. I just genuinely have almost no memories of either my opinion or the film. I remember it was kind of more of a romance than the, the comic, but that's all I've got, and that's just like sense memory, which is probably works in its favor. I never saw it. I never saw League really? of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. I didn't want to see From Hell because I liked the comic too much. I didn't see League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because Jake said he almost walked out on it like on opening night or some shit. And then what's the other one? Well, The Watchmen I saw. So Yeah, Watchmen is still a, a curious piece of, of film because it, it did what it, it was incredibly successful in what it wanted to do. It just it turns out what it wanted to do isn't worth doing. Film medium is just a different medium than comic books. You can't do a direct translation well. It has to go through a filter of some sort to appropriately fit the medium. That was I had a bigger problem with Sin City because of that and 300 than I did with Watchmen. Yeah, I remember you hated Sin City. I didn't hate it. It's just it's boring because I read the comic. So when they put it on the screen, it's the same thing. I, I, I remember liking Sin City just because... I thought it was an interesting thing to capture that style visually. I thought, and I thought that was cool. They did a fine job with it. It was, I just, it was boring to me. Sin City, it wasn't as bad as Watchmen for that particular thing for me. No. But, <laughs> and Watchmen even starts with Bob Dylan, man. So you know, all right, enough Watchmen talk. Yeah, no Snyder is one of our rules here. <laughs> 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 Discussing Zack Snyder is a no-win scenario. So, oh, you know, I was going to call this a proto James Wan film, and I just forgot to do that. So there you go. Really? <laughs> <laughs> really? I was going to write a whole thing, but that would just be trolling. We got to turn this into a video podcast one of these days, just so people can see Eric react to the dumb shit that I say. Because it would be trolling. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that might be. That's a bridge too fucking far for this episode. <laughs> I should I should rephrase. I admire your restraint, Jake. That would be trolling you specifically, Eric. <laughs> I'll troll Nick all fucking day. That's my whole job on this podcast. I try to avoid trolling you because you have actual smart and intelligent things to say. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> the degree of vehemence we got on this episode is what I expected, but not in the direction I expected. <laughs> because the way I've got it is in our video set up is Jerry's to your left, Nick's below is like, no, it's, a, it's shouting supposed to go down this way. Instead, it's going now over this way. I wasn't expecting You're all to it. my left. It's Nick, Jer, Eric. It's just <laughs> the rage waterfall effect of do, 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 do. <laughs> I'm just getting the runoff. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying I've got two ongoing bits, the community connection and bringing up James Wan. So I just had to get it in there somewhere. And now I might just compare everything to Legion because that was pretty fun. Eric turned into a beat. <laughs> no, not Legion Dumb, not Legion Dumb. No, 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 no. It's definitely better than that. Oh, can we get a new t-shirt? Legion Dumb. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Dumb, yes. Legion dumb. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think that's about all I've got to say on this piece of shit. You sure? <laughs> Not unless you want to stay up another hour. I'm good. <laughs> Look, I got Jared to have an emotional reaction. This is our most successful <laughs> podcast ever. <laughs>
Not only did Jer say eight words, he yelled them. <laughs> I had a question going into this. I, I, I try and account for all possibilities. I knew this was a possibility, but I had a question going in. Does Jake like it any more now than he did back in 2005? And that question has been answered. And, <laughs> that, and I mean, this no derision. I'm glad that question was answered. I was Me legitimately too. curious. If we're being honest. Like we mentioned, there's a lot of folks who are going back and revisiting this and being like, oh, this is better. I remember. Oh, this is, you know, lost masterpiece or whatever. So I was really curious. I was like, oh, I wonder if my opinion will change. I wonder if Jake's opinion will change. I wonder if Nick's opinion will change. Who cares? So. And now we know. <laughs> I, I will admit, I had hoped it would change going into this, but it did not. I was honestly surprised my opinion didn't change after getting six billion Disney Marvel movies since this came out, you know, and it it didn't. For me, it's just as good an adventure story as it was then. So I, w- I was slightly surprised my opinion didn't change for the better or the worse one way or the other, but it didn't. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Well, look, I'm glad you guys still like it. I'm glad people enjoy it. I hope they never make another one, but I'm glad people enjoy it. I, you know, I just don't. It's funny you mention that. Yeah, I, I saw that Peter Stromer said that there was something in the works. Didn't this do well enough that it could have had a sequel at the time? It did like $200 million, but it tanked critically. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think critics did like it was on like Ebert's most hated list or something like that, which again. And is part of that because it was an R-rated movie that it doesn't deserve to be R-rated, really? Yeah. I can't imagine that was Ebert's problem, but he, he had it on his all-time hated list. Yeah, which again, that seems ex- like I can see Ebert and I like it, but again, that's like yeah. that's like calling it Legion dumb. I mean, come <laughs> <laughs> come on. Do I do I get points for agreeing with Roger Ebert or, or Roger Ebert agreeing with me? Does that count for anything? No, not on a horror podcast because Roger Ebert's the famously the you know has. Yeah, that's true. I think it was later in life he was somewhat more amenable to horror stuff. I mean, yeah, during like the eighties and stuff, it was like fuck this. Shit. It was infamously you know used to tell people you know to. You know, write in about how terrible the Friday the Thirteenth movies are and stuff like that. So maybe not so much from the horror pod perspective, but but it did make it. Yeah, two hundred thirty million on a budget that was, I think the high end on it was possibly a hundred million. Double that for marketing, two hundred million. So that would be thirty million profit. So it did make some money, and yeah, I guess there have been sporadic rumblings like over the past few years about possibly doing a sequel, which seems weird to me. And like I don't think it's picked up that much momentum. But it was something that I was curious about because watching it, I was thinking, would I like to see a sequel to this? And it's funny because I kind of would, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like it because the, the like the main appeal of wanting to see a sequel to this would be a I think you can do more with less money now because it, it ain't getting a comparable budget to what it got in 2005 now. But I think you can do more with less. But what I would be curious about is taking these characters and aging them 15 years and like revisiting Rachel Weiss's character to the point where now she's another person whose life has been fucking ruined by proximity to John Constantine and having Keanu Reeves play a 15 years older John Constantine and trying to, you know, do you know the added damage and gravitas that would come with that. I think there's potentially something really interesting with that amount of a time jump. Here's the issue. Outside of John Wick, I haven't liked any Keanu Reeves performance in the last several years. Oh, uh, you didn't like Knock Knock? 
I haven't seen Knock Knock, but it was the, the one romantic comedy, and I'm blanking on the name. I should have looked it up. Hannah recommended it because it's it's Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder, and Hannah's like I thought it was sh- like shockingly good, so I watched it, and it's just it, I, I did not like Keanu. I think he's his approach works fine for John Wick now. I like the John Wick movies, but I think he's very kind of like I don't think his range has expanded that much in the intervening years. And well, to be fair, I didn't see the new Bill and Ted, so that's another potential one where he might have you know switched things up a bit that I haven't seen. But from the clips I saw, it looked very much like kind of what I expected. But so it, it's one of those. I don't think he would succeed at this just based on other context I have. But it's the rare sequel thing where it's like I for this particular character and it's like man, I kind of would like to see him try. It's like don't think they'll succeed, but I kind of would like to see him try. Disagree. <laughs> Disagree. <laughs> you should definitely check him out and always be my baby. He, he basically plays a mockery of himself. It's it's amazing. <laughs> Jake said this movie should be buried in fucking Mexico in some random set of ruins <laughs> like the Spirit Dust. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't think you have much chance of of getting a sequel to this because they. I, I yeah, you I don't got think so. as we've discussed, Matt Smith has taken over the role and has been playing it in a lot of media. Ryan. Ryan Smith. Sorry. Matt Ryan. Whatever. Matt Ryan. <laughs> Matt Ryan <laughs> has been playing it, and I think he's he's kind of made the character his own, at least for a little while. I mean, who knows if, he, if they make another adaption, but I can't see Keanu Reeves being in it again. I'm not saying I want a sequel of it or anything like that. I'm just a little surprised that it didn't get one. At the time, you know, I mean, it it was really kind of ransacked by critics and it didn't make enough to sort of overcome that. And also, I mean, it's, I'm kind of surprised it made as much as it did being it was R rated. And it's, it's I guess I'd say I'm shocked they invested that amount of money even then. But again, they went in thinking, all right, well, if we hit these check boxes, we'll get PG-13. And then they didn't. So I think it pulling in the amount of money it did for it being R, I'm shocked it made that much. It certainly had a similar palette to latter DC failures, so, you know, I don't know. I, anywho, <laughs> I just read the Ebert review, and it's pretty funny. He mentions penguins a couple of times. What? I, I guess one of them penguin movies was out at the same time, and he's just letting people know to go see that instead. Well, like Happy Feet? I don't know which one. Whatever one was out in 2005. March of the Penguins? I think it was March of the Penguins. That was the documentary, right? That was the documentary, yeah. Anyway, the Roger Ebert review is online. It's worth reading. Well, this has been pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I I know this has been one of the more subdued episodes of the pod. I'm sorry that this has been what's probably going to be more than two hours finished. And it, it's much like the movie. I'm sorry this episode is dragged. I should so apologize much. to our viewers for not offering my opinion and just being kind of, you know, there on this. I liked it. <laughs> I'm trying to break Eric, and it's it's I'm so close. <laughs> but no, I thanks everyone for revisiting this movie. I I do think it was again from a longtime comic fan perspective, going back and revisiting this film after so long. I thought it would be interesting. I think the end result speaks for itself. Yeah, it was. We definitely had an interesting time. If nothing else, watching Jake's face throughout all this has been worth it for me. <laughs> I, I appreciated the opportunity to vent my spleen about this particular film. Not my gallbladder. That shit's gone. But my spleen, still working. 
And I'm just glad to be here again talking about... We're glad to have you. So glad you made it. The movie I actually like this time instead of that shitty thing you made me watch last time. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to make it up to you much sooner and much more significantly, but I'm so I'm glad you like this because I thought, oh man, if Jerry hates this too, I'm going to feel extra bad about Fallen Angels. We'll have you back on for Dylan Dog. Dylan Dog, which has a wrestler in it. <laughs> That's on Netflix, right? I I read some of those comics. Yeah, I I've read some of the comics too. They're they're pretty good. Nick is like fucking comics. God damn it! <laughs> I still haven't watched Solomon Kane. I should watch that movie. Surprisingly entertaining. Dumb like Legion, but surprisingly entertaining. <laughs> you can't. You cannot argue with me. That movie is dumb like Legion, Eric. I I don't remember it that well. I remember thinking it was eh. But I don't remember it being that. I all I remember is Max Van Seidel being in the first part. Like, it's fun. Look, I enjoyed it. It it is shockingly entertaining for what it is. But it it is dumb like Legion. Yeah, I really can't. Well, when we do it, because like I said, I want to do it. And hey, Jerry could give our uh, comics lesson on Solomon Kane. I have read some Solomon Kane comics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Best part of that is the ten seconds where Jerry realized, oh wait, I'm supposed to talk. <laughs> well i i don't know much you know it's not like i've read 600 issues of it or anything i've read a few i thought solid- you had i thought you read a whole bunch of those robert e howard trades of it i read the book i have the trade of the comics and i read the original series and i read some of the dark horse stuff but i mean i haven't read every solomon kane comic out there because i love solomon kane so much hmm, my mistake i thought you had read a bunch more yeah maybe 20 or 30 comics I read a fair amount of the stuff that was, you know, the backups in Conan and stuff. But Well, I guess you got homework when we do that episode, yeah, huh? so it is. At the latest when we do Solomon Kane, but seriously, Jared, we're always just happy to see you. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I was, I'm glad to be here. I had fun. Love you. And seriously, everybody, thank you so much for taking time to revisit this movie. Thank you for taking time to... Test the decibel range of our microphones. <laughs> <laughs> at least on my Legion, Tom! <sighs> but anyway, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Seriously, hope you've had a good time because I think this discussion's been a blast. If you did like this episode, you want to leave us a review on your preferred pod platform, that'd be great. Follow us on Twitter at ScaryStuffPod. Follow us on Instagram at ScaryStuffPodcast. We're on Letterboxd, which is also ScaryStuffPodcast. We have a website, ScaryStuffPodcast.com. And if I don't do a plug in post earlier in this episode, we have coffee available. So this episode will be out before the end of September of 2022. And our coffee is on sale for that particular month. So go to rootlesscoffee.com and go to the collaborations page and you'll see our coffee there. Get your orders in before September 30th of 2022. So that's rootlesscoffee.com and it's R-O-O-T-L-E-S-S. So yeah. And order a lot because it's good coffee. It is. We've mentioned it before, but... Sincerely, it's it's not just because it's got our label on it. Rootless is my go-to coffee. Can't stress it enough. I really, really enjoy their stuff. So, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys it and hope you enjoyed this episode. And thank everyone so much for listening. We'll be back with another episode pretty shortly, which we have a pair of fabulous guests. I really can't wait for people to hear that discussion. But in the meantime, this is Eric saying thank you so much for listening. This is Nick saying, I do miss the old names. Uh, This is Jake saying, if you'd like to learn more about Constantine, check your local library or online resources, and uh, you should. Go to your local comic shop and buy some fucking comics, goddammit. Yeah, go to to your local shop and buy them. If you can't, 
Hoopla, which is the digital service that's tied into libraries, they have a lot of the trades, yeah. But yeah, go to your local shop. Go to Captain Blue Hen. Specifically get the original Jamie Delano Hellblazer, which is original sins, and then jump uh, for, in terms of trades to Dangerous Habits, which is Garth Ennis. And any, anything in the Garth Ennis runs will get you hooked on this character for the rest of your life. Jer, do you want to sign off? Me? Yeah. No, the other Jer. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate being back. Yeah, it was a good time. Good movie. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. And yeah, everyone, thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. Good night and Legion Dumb. Legion Dumb, my ass. Good night, everybody. Disagree.